Another World Superbike season in the books, a season where the best in the world once again ripped up the record books. Welcome to Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 87 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on a tremendous World Superbike season, particularly if your name is Jonathan Ray, a four-time World Superbike champion now as he equaled the record of the great Carl Fogarty whilst claiming many of his race victory records as he did so. Uh, we'll discuss all of the key moments and all the highlights and the lowlights of the 2018 season over the course of the next couple of hours with a very special guest joining us as well uh, we'll also look ahead to this weekend's final round um, of the MotoGP season and the farewell for one of MotoGP's greats of the last 15 years um, I will also look ahead briefly to next year as the entry lists are published and that includes the entry list for the brand new Moto E World Cup we will tell you who is on the grid uh, towards the end of this show before we crack on though um, the places you can find us starting on Facebook facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 on twitter we're at motorsport underscore 101 uh, our youtube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 and if you like us so much that you'd like to back us financially on patreon uh, patreon.com forward slash uh, motorsport 101 five dollar backing as you early access to both of our weekly shows um that's this show and motorsport 101 we'll talk about motorsport 101 uh, at the end of the podcast um, and Bike Live, $10 backing gives you access to our Discord server and the opportunity to listen in live as they are recorded. Although, if you are one of those, you'll notice that this week's Bike Live is an exception to that. Stick around, we have a very good excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this is our 2018 World Superbike season review, and uh, we've been looking forward to this one for quite a while. Joining me, as always, is Andre Harrison. Andre, welcome. Uh, welcome as always and uh yeah what, what, a, what a crazy world superbike season ended up being um spoiler alert guy in green wins a lot um yes. just just for the record yeah, there's <laughs> be a running theme through this um but it has been a fantastic season uh which we will be uh, picking up some of the memories of it as we go and uh, we've got the perfect person to do it with us because me and dre are not alone this week uh we are joined by the voice of the sport for uh, eurosport uh and the uh writer of World Superbikes for MCN as well. It's a warm welcome back to Bike Live to, uh, to Greg Haynes to review this World Superbike season. Greg, many, many thanks for coming back on uh, and welcome. Thank you very much, Lewis. Uh, Dre, I must say, nice to speak to you as well, although I am devastated that you have just given away the results of the 2018 season. Never! Oh, I would never do such a thing. Like, it was only an accident, promise. <laughs> Yeah, to all those yeah, people who were sitting here hoping that Roman Ramos won this championship, they're going to be solely disappointed. Um, oh, Kawasaki did win, to be Kawasaki fair. Kawasaki did win, so, um, so yeah, we weren't yeah. far off. It, it was a terrific season, um, and it did sort of pick up on a record-breaking 2017 uh, for Jonathan Ray, who set a brand-new points record uh, at the end of last year. He just broke new ground, as he seems to be doing with every World Superbike round he goes to these days. Um, and we pick up the start of the 2018 season. Uh, Dre, in Phillip Island, the perfect start for any motorcycle racing season. It's the perfect perfect setting for any motorcycle race. Um, basically, any motorcycle series that goes there produces brilliant racing. And it has to be said, it produced something of a shock. I don't think many of us tuned in uh, in the early hours of the morning as we were, Dre, in the UK for the opening round of Phillip Island, expecting a Marco Melandri double. 
I certainly didn't. I'll say that much. Um, no, that was a genuine surprise. I mean, let's be honest. If you're thinking Ducati, you're probably leaning more towards Chaz Davis if you're the sort of guy that, that works in the bookies like I do. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was a genuine big surprise. But, I mean, if I remember correctly, Jonathan walked into that season nowhere near 100%. He was coming off a motocross injury, and um, he was also quite ill over the course of the weekend as well. Not for the first time this season, as it, as it would turn out. But, uh yeah, we walked into Phillip Island, and yeah, Kawasaki wasn't at its strongest. I mean, Phillip Island like is the sort of track that seems to balance the books because it's it's hard to break the toe, and you know it's it's it brings everybody closer together. But uh, I did not expect Marco Melandri to be uh, so far ahead of everybody else on the opening weekend. I'm not sure anybody did because because if he did, I want your lottery numbers. Quite frankly, yeah. I mean, he does have a historic great record around Phillip Island, doesn't he? I mean, he's still responsible for the coolest celebration I think any of us have ever seen uh, oh, when, yes. when he won in a Moto Grand Prix race there, uh, coming out in the final corner. But yeah, he he overcame race one pulses to Tom Sykes um, on the Saturday just so proved too strong for him as that race unfolded but I'm not sure any season review Greg is long enough to really get into what happened in race two because uh, as you said just before we started recording it's good to do these season reviews just to remind us of some of the sort of funny things that happened through a season and it's amazing sort of nine months on to think to the opening round of the season at Phillip Island Greg and realize that in race two, mid-race pit stops were a thing. Yeah, PJ Jacobson was in the lead, wasn't yeah. he, for one lap? The Triple M Honda just goes to show how things change, but wasn't that brilliant? I know it was a strange situation, and some people say it was Pirelli's fault. Other people saying, well, actually, might not be quite so much Pirelli's fault because the teams and riders, in some cases, were pushing their luck with the tyre pressures. That's another story, but whatever. It brought us this amazing situation, didn't it? Similar to what had happened in MotoGP, five years earlier in that we had tyres that weren't lasting a race distance, compulsory pit stops. And it, of course, took the whole equation of tyre wear pretty much out of the equation because mm. we had two, effectively, two short races in one, didn't we? So the whole field was bunched together. And I'll never, ever forget, I think, for as long as I live, those bikes piling out of the pit lane halfway through that yeah. race with the rest of them bearing down on them. That was crest, scary. Yeah. That uh, was, yeah. It was a spectacular Skip. sight, yeah, because we had we had a number of guys pitted. I think they had three laps that they could pit on between them and you know, across the field. The vast majority yeah. pitted on the first two laps, and as, as Greg rightly mentions, PJ Jacobson. And I remember the Aussie wildcard, whose name escapes me, um, both went on a lap later. Um, the Aussie wildcard got himself disqualified. He was so desperate to lead the race that he didn't even come in in the required window and led the race himself for a lap um, before getting DQ'd. Jacobson Daniel Falzon was Falzon his name. Is his name. Yeah, thank you. He <laughs> led the race for a lap as well um, back in Australia in February. Um, Marco Melandri went on to win that race with the perfectly timed slipstream over the line to beat Jonathan Ray over the line at the end of the final lap of race two. Um, but I think back to that first weekend, Greg, and I also think about a prettiest weekend, and we'll mention them a few times through this, this podcast, but... Phillip Island, of all the weekends in 2018, must be one of their big missed opportunities of 2018. Because I remember Savadori being quickest on Friday before injuring himself in Super Pole. And we shouldn't forget, before all the chaos of the mid-race pit stops, Eugene Lamity crashed out of a very comfortable lead. Yeah, it really did actually give us a foretaste of the season that was to come, didn't it, for the Aprilia team and Sean Muir Racing. As you say, Savadori broke his collarbone, so he was out of action for the whole race weekend. He wasn't really right for a while after that either. Mm. And then, as you say, Laverty was leading on merit. He could have easily won that race, and that was a mistake of Eugene Laverty's. And I have to say, 
without sounding too harsh, it wasn't the only mistake he made this year. Of course, the real problem for Laverty, and we'll come on to this later, was Thailand when he got hurt. But yeah, to cut a long story short, we could have easily been coming out of Australia celebrating a Malandri win on a Ducati and a Laverty win on an Aprilia, but uh, threw it down the road, didn't he? He did, he did. And uh, in the end, what we got was a Malandri win in race two from Jonathan Ray with Chavi Forrest completing the podium. You'll hear his name mentioned quite a lot as well in these early rounds uh, of the season because he started the season superbly. Um, with Tom Sykes taking fourth, the other rider who has a bit of a hard luck story to tell from that opening weekend was Chaz Davies, who, uh, for the, what, the second time in three years, crashed out of a very strong position in Phillip Island in the second race. This time, of course, he crashed out of the lead uh, down at the MG Hairpin, having seemingly got the better of that mid-race pit stop phase where he seemed to have a bit of a break um, on the rest of the group before dropping it um, down at the hairpin. Uh, but Malandri left the opening weekend, Dre, with a 50-point maximum score. But it became apparent, even as early as the next round in in, uh, in Thailand, in Buriram, that not all was well with, certainly with Marco Malandri's side of the Ducati garage. Because, quite frankly, whenever we saw him on screen at a race weekend, particularly going down the longest and the fastest of straights, that Ducati was giving, it must have given him a headache and a pretty upset stomach. It was making all sorts of shapes. Um, yeah, you got a bad case of the shakes um, coming down every main straight at the best part of 190 miles an hour. Every time he was getting up towards top end speed, the thing started shaking. It was ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it in bike racing <laughs> where uh, a, a Ducati has just been completely unstable and has started wobbling um, at near top near top end speed before coming under braking. It was it was completely bizarre, and it was it was the o- he was the only guy it was happening to. It just didn't make any sense, and this this kept becoming a thing throughout the season. It wasn't something that Ducati was able to actually solve. It was a recurring problem that even as much as the final round was still happening, where. Um, I still remember in Argentina where Melandri on the main straight, well, next thing you know, the bike starts wobbling again. And thankfully, it never ended in some sort of horrific-looking accident. But, uh, yeah, very bizarre that that only happened to Melandri all season long. I don't know what was going on there. Like, Greg, did you have any idea about how that was happening? Well, it was a question, wasn't it? It's something we first saw in Portimao last year, if you remember, in race mm. two, slipstream going on, wasn't there, down the main straight? And we saw it there, but we just thought, oh, crikey, it was just one of those death wobbles coming out of the last corner and we sort of forgot about it after that and then mm. it came back again and really we never completely got to the bottom of it did we freddie spencer had some particularly good explanations of it in the commentary at times but i think the main reason was because he's a lot smaller than the other riders obviously Chaz davis is pretty tall yeah um rinaldi's somewhere in the middle forres as well but obviously melandry's a lot shorter but a big difference between davis and melandry so but his center of gravity is very different he's a lot lighter of course but it basically got to a situation where, as you said, particularly in Australia and also in Thailand and then other tracks as well during the season, he was having to almost accept that that was the lesser of two evils. Although it was losing him time, it was still the faster way to get that Ducati down the straights. But it did amaze me, I have to say, that a team like the Field Racing team, the Aruba team, and a rider like Milan calmed down after Thailand, it never really went away. No, it didn't. And uh, Jonathan Ray would go on to take the first win of that weekend in town. It's unusual for Jonathan Ray to have to wait until the second weekend uh, to take his first win of the season. The first of a record equaling 17 that he would take over the course of the 2018 season. Uh, His nearest challenges in race one were Xavi Forres, who went one better than his third in race two in Philippine with a second uh, career best equaling, uh, second in Thailand race one, uh, with Chaz Davies in third. 
Davis were going to win the second race with the two Yamahas joining him on the podium. And Jonathan Ray, Greg, although he would leave time, I think he left it in the end, a narrow championship leader based on how poor a weekend Malandri had uh, at Boriram. But it was pretty clear at this early stage that Kawasaki were not having things all their own way, were they? In particular, on the Straits of Thailand, it was noticeable how Jonathan Ray was seemingly having to make so much time up on the brakes because that thing just was not yeah. getting out of corners and getting onto straights. Well, at the end of that weekend, Lewis, I remember having a chat with Michael Guy, who you will have heard in commentary with us mm. a few times, particularly in Argentina this year. He was back in the box. And he's the sports editor for Motorcycle News. So at the end of each weekend, I have a chat with Michael on the phone. Obviously, the Argentina weekend was, was really good because we were together, but usually over the phone. And we discussed what we're going to do. And what we did at the end of the Thailand weekend was a general sort of spread as, you know, we really have got a fight on our hands here. Look how open this championship is. Of course, it wouldn't turn out that way in the end, but at that point, it was definitely looking that way. Um, and as you say, Jonathan Ray, he was still second in the championship after race one, but he took the lead after race two, having won one of them, and then he still struggled, didn't he? I think he was fourth or yeah, fifth. Yeah, the Yamaha's were ahead right. of him, and Chas Davis, of yeah. winner. That's right, yeah, Yamaha got a double podium, didn't they? And they were really pleased with that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Tom Sykes pulled into the pits and they were really at that point because of the reduction in revs, of course, which was one of the main changes at the beginning of this year. They were, they claim, having to stress, Kawasaki this is, having to stress their brakes, stress their suspensions. They were having to make up as much as possible on mechanical braking because they couldn't rely as much anymore on the engine braking because of the changes there with the revolutions. And they've had an interesting response to that, by the way, for next year. Maybe we'll discuss that later. But, yeah, they were stressing brakes, suspensions and everything. Sykes pulled into the pit lane because it was so bad. A real catastrophic suspension failure. And Jonathan Ray's brakes were overheating badly. But as Jonathan Ray does best, he accepts when he can't win. And on that rare occasion, couldn't even get a podium either. But he still picked up good points. Whereas you have to say, other riders probably would have thrown it down the road and scored zero. And that's why Ray was still in a really strong position as we got towards Aragon. Mm, uh, and the... The pattern kind of continued, didn't it, Dre, at Aragon of, of Jonathan mm. Ray kind of swimming against the tide and having to you know, almost ride above himself and ride quicker than that bike was really capable of going to beat the Ducatis. I mean, the Ducatis were the story, really, of those opening rounds of the season because when we got to Aragon, Jonathan Ray would win race one, and I would almost go as far as to say that was one of his best wins of the season, uh, race one at Aragon, because he was surrounded by red Ducatis. <laughs> Yeah, he really did. I mean, shout out to me for kind of predicting that one. And I distinctly remember this weekend was when Greg read out one of my tweets on Eurosport <laughs> TV during qualifying. And then 10 seconds later, Chaz Davis hit the deck. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> was- I really did. You took him off the road. Uh, yeah, I do remember that. It's still on my Instagram to this day. Uh, I think I tagged you in it about a few months ago. I, st- I still hope <laughs> that. I remember you did. Yeah, that was that was one of my highlights of the season, personally. But uh, no, the race itself was 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 tremendous in the sense of yeah, it it kind of set the story for the first quarter of the season because after this round, well, Ducati wouldn't win another round this season, um, and, and we'll get to the reasons why in due course. But yeah, it was Jonathan and a fleet of red bikes around him. It was kind of the story of the season so far. Jonathan just barely keeping his head above the water. Ducati were just surrounding him and looked like they had the stronger bike in the field. And 
yeah, Javi Flores was in the mix, and 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 obviously Chaz was in there. Chaz always goes well at Aragon. It's one of his favorite tracks on the calendar. He's always um, gone well around there. And Jonathan narrowly picked up the win over Chaz um, on that one. Um, and yeah, an incredibly impressive victory. Um, so as I mentioned, Chaz just goes so well around there and to beat Chaz on one of his own best circuits um, on a Kawasaki that clearly I think was you know, not at its optimal performance and especially compared to where Ducati was and um given the state of play of that season. I mean, we we haven't talked so much about the rev limits and concession issues yet, but did, I think at that point in time Kawasaki was revving less than their standard ninja. So that's how bad it was in terms of uh trying to keep up with the rest of the field. Ducati were just so strong at the start of the year. Uh, so for Jonathan to still come through and win an Aragon like that in in race one, arguably his best win of the year. If it was a it was a superb performance, and he matched uh, Chaz uh, Davis's Chaz. points total for the weekend. They both took a win in a second each uh, out of what was historically one of Chaz Davis's strongest rounds. And as Dre mentioned, Davis did win race two um, for what would be his and Ducati's um, last win of the season. The the rider I wanted to talk about though, Greg, out of that Aragon weekend um, was Chavi Forres because he took. Uh, another podium. He finished third in that first race and did crash out of a very strong position uh, in the second race as well. I think he was leading the race. So he's leading the lead um, was, when he, was, he fell yeah. off in that second race. That would be his last visit to the podium until Magni Kaur, uh, right towards the end of the year when he was third to the two Kawasaki's in that opening race, the race where Johnny Ray won the title. And without skipping ahead too much, I, I still find it a crying shame. And perhaps it's a reflection of how strong World Superbikes is nowadays in terms of rider talent, that Chami Forrest is not currently on the grid um, for 2019. He does not have a, a place within a team for World Superbikes in 2019. And when you think back to the performances and the level he was riding at around Aragon time, those first two rounds of, that, of last season, that seemed almost unthinkable. It doesn't seem correct, does it really? It doesn't seem fair, you could say. But until earlier this week or the week before we had even more riders without rise didn't we but we'll talk about Forrest right now great guy really competent rider he's won the german championship before multiple podium finishes in world superbikes this year incidentally also just add to what you just said there lewis the fact that xavi Forrest wouldn't get back on the podium until magni core and the fact that ducati didn't win another race after aragon i mean who on earth? If we were sat here this time last year, we would have been stupid for saying such a thing, wouldn't we? That a Ducati would not win a race once we'd got past Aragon. It just sums up the season. Of course, it was going to get worse as well, but Xavi Forrest threw it down the road, unfortunately, in that race, crashed out, uh, which was a great shame. But I remember seeing him in the paddock later on that day, and he was really kicking himself. And he said, you know, I hardly did anything wrong. He said I had maybe an extra kilometre an hour or two at the end of the straight. It felt like I braked maybe just a tiny bit it, it was literally you know we were talking almost centimeters that's that's how narrow it was in terms of the margins that's why he lost the lead there um but yeah it's as the season has gone on it's been shown now that aruba was clearly very interested in michael rubin around they ran him in the aruba junior team i've literally actually just before we did the interview here was just having a chat with uh, piero guidi who is the team manager uh, was at least the team manager for the junior team just to say what's actually happening next year there will be no junior team in 2019 so to me that says as well that they were really using that to nurture Rinaldi weren't they and they've got Rinaldi onto the Barney bike and I'm sure I know they would have wanted to keep Forrest the problem is Barnabo, Marco Barnabo, Barney himself they just can't fund two bikes it's like the Pachetti team they're top independent teams but they can't afford to run 
a second bike. So Aruba was really pushing for Rinaldi. And unfortunately, it means that Forrest is left on the sidelines. And I think it's very likely now he won't even be on the World Superbike grid next year. He'll be on the BSB grid, probably on a Honda or perhaps on a Tyco BMW. They're the two best bets now, it looks. Yeah, well, I mean, we'd love to see Xavi Forrest on, on the British uh, grid. I mean, he'll be a great addition to the British Championship. But yeah, he deserves to be riding at world level, doesn't he? Um, and it gives us actually a chance now, once we've rounded up Aragon, to touch on one of the big stories of the season. And, and Dre's already um, sort of foreshadowed it already. Because Aragon was the last round before we saw the first tweak to the rev limits, uh, where every manufacturer, I believe with the exception of Ducati, were handed back 250 revs. Um, now, of course, as we've mentioned, Ducati did not win another race from that point on. Um, and, of course, they had started the season superbly. Um, they'd won four races out of the first six um, between Melandri and Davies. Now, Greg, from Assen round four onwards, where the rev limits were tweaked for the first time, Ducati would not win another race again. Is that pure coincidence, or is there more to it than that? Well, interesting you say that, because I remember speaking to Chad Davis in probably January sort of time around the Jerez test, and Marco Zambenedetti, who's the technical guru, the big boss there at Ducati, in the superbike side of things. He's sort of the Gigi Delinea of the superbike side, if you like, mm. from a day-to-day basis. And to be fair, and Chaz in particular, both said, you know what, we really can't read into this too soon. And I think we even said this in one of the shows, didn't we, earlier last year. Let's give it four, even five rounds, and then we'll really have a judge as to, you know, an indicator as to where we are this year. To answer your question, I don't think it is a coincidence, no. And also, to be fair to Ducati, and of course, everyone wanted to play the victim, didn't they, at the start of 2018 but they did say with the way our bike is and the way it revs with the v-twin you've got to you know it doesn't rev very highly anyway the v-twin and the way the torque is and the engine characteristics it's going to hit us hardest and it did didn't it really quite frankly the aprilia lost most revs because because their bike was the oldest so they had most to drop again didn't they it was about five six years of development they had to go back to but the ducati's the one that really seemed to feel it most on the track and we saw a big drop didn't we i mean i couldn't believe it in donington when they were running around, what were they, 10th and 11th or something like that in the second race there? It was unbelievable, but they they did. They dropped off the cliff. And if you looked at the lap times for Mimola, not only did Kawasaki beat them hands down, but the Ducatis were actually lapping slower this year at Imola than they had done in race pace in 2017. So I think, really, could you say the regulations backfired from that point of view i think certainly from that side of things well they did didn't they really because that didn't do the job they were supposed to bring them closer to kawasaki at the same time i think it's fair to say kawasaki are very very smart and they found ways around it but uh, the ducati definitely got hit badly yeah they did and, and kawasaki would just get stronger and stronger uh, as the year went on kawasaki between them would win both races in assen although it wasn't jonathan ray this time winning the both of them this was tom sykes's only win of the year uh, which, again, sounds amazing to say that he only took the one win and that was reverse grid assisted um, without uh, sounding too disrespectful um, in the second race where he took the pole position and then led away from the start of it whilst his rivals were coming through traffic. Whenever we think of Assen, uh, Dre, we tend to think of Michael Vandermark and he did give Jonathan Ray a serious run for his money in race one. He really did. Like, my... That's, that's been the story of Michael Vandermark for the last two or three years. Even if his, his bike maybe on paper isn't quite there like he was when he was with Honda, he'd always find a way to find an extra half second at Assen. It's the old Nigel Mansell theory of you're always 
half a second quicker at home. And I think that was definitely the case of Michael Vandermark. And he once again, gave Jonathan a very, very good fight um, um, in, in that round at Aston there. And again, pushed Jonathan all the way to the flag on that one. Like, I, the, the, we have to wait just a little bit longer for the for the Vandermark home victory because I know the Dutch will absolutely lose their minds if that ever yeah. happens. Because um, um, we, we, we've been very close to it now on four or five occasions and it's not quite happened yet. The the first Vandermark victory would come a little bit later on. But um, yeah, I'm still an incredible performance from Vandermark again then. It was the first real sign that, yeah, Yamaha weren't just, you know, guys that were running fifth and sixth on a regular basis anymore they were actually challenging for victories now and it was great to see it was and, and, and greg i mean let's talk tom sykes briefly i mean he cost won that second race um at Aston. It, i mean it wasn't just a victory it was an ass whooping he, he won it by five seconds um with the huge benefit it has to be said of the race two pole he was it was one of those unusual situations where he finished fourth in a four-man leading group so the only three guys who really had the pace to go with him were all back on the third row um, for race two. Tom Sykes took full advantage, and it's been a difficult year in many respects, hasn't it, for Tom Sykes? I mean, it's the first time since, I believe, 2011 that he's been outside the top three in the World Championship at the end of the season, which is a phenomenal record. Um, there have been positives, of course. He now is out on his own as the all-time greatest Super Bowl rider in World Superbike history, but... In many ways, it's a bit of a sad reflection on his season, Greg, that Aston Race 2 was his only win. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, really, when you think about it. Along with Ducati not winning anything after Aragon. In fact, Sykes didn't win anything after Aston. He's another amazing one. Sykes didn't win a race at Donington this year. I mean, who would have ever expected that? And only won the entire season. Um, and it doesn't look great, does it, quite frankly, when Jonathan Ray's won 17 on the same motorcycle and the same team. But, as you say, Sykes has got the pole record. That will stand, I imagine, for quite some time. Uh, you, did, you can see him extending on that as well, can't you, even on the BMW next year. So that's exciting. We'll see how he can do, how he can manage that. Um, but you're right, Lewis. You're absolutely right, because it was the reverse grid. He managed to pull away. Ray got caught, really, didn't he, coming through. It wasn't easy there at Assen. It's not the easiest start to a lap. And that's what won the race, really, for Tom Sykes. Of course, it wasn't only that, but that was a big, big influence there. Uh, and, and he was gone, wasn't it? And that was the actually the biggest winning margin of the season until Argentina when Jonathan Ray won one of the races there by I think it was the first race by nine seconds or so which was a big gap um but Sykes I mean he said quite honestly in interviews you know it has not been a difficult it has not sorry it has not been an easy year it's been a very difficult year on and off the track and he said some of the troubles he's had he's you know it's very on the record he's had a divorce it's, it's been difficult I mean it would be wouldn't it can you imagine what it's like especially when you've got two young daughters as well and you're away a lot. Mm. And he said, you don't like to bring this kind of stuff to work. But unfortunately, it, it does. And, and it hit Tom badly. And that, that's not just me saying that. He said that himself very honestly. He has been extremely candid and honest in his TV interviews this year and written press interviews as well. I just hope now for Tom Sykes, because he is a fantastic rider, as you said, he's got that pole record. He's a brilliant character. You never quite know what he's going to say next in his interviews. And, and that's great from a TV point of view, isn't it? Let's just hope he can find his feet with the BMW. I think it will be better for him now. I mean, it must have been soul-destroying. Jonathan Ray coming into his team and, and thrashing him, quite frankly, over the course of not one, not two, not three, but four seasons. If you add up Jonathan Ray's wins in those seasons compared with Sykes, it's a pretty shocking sort of stat, isn't it, really? So let's hope that the BMW, you know, there's not going to be the expectation going into the year in terms of he's expected now to be on the podium or certainly not going to be expected to win races and certainly not the championship. 
And I think that will suit him better right now as well. Mm, it will sort of out of the limelight to a certain extent. He'll 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 relish that. <clears throat> he'll relish that. Excuse me. Um, moving on to Imola, the fifth round of the season, and uh, we've already mentioned it already how Ducati seemingly had regressed a year on. They were dominated by the Kawasaki's. Kawasaki took a one-two. Um, in the uh, first race of the weekend, Sykes was unable to convert that into a second one too. Uh, on the second race of the weekend, as Ducati um, got a bit of honour back uh, in the second race, as Chas Davies beat Sykes to second place. Um, but Dre, I think that was probably the moment, wasn't it, where first of all the gap started to seriously grow um, mm-hmm. between Jonathan Ray and Chas Davies in the championship. We started to see a serious gap between the two. But I think it was noticeable to us that if Ducati were being beaten comprehensively by Kawasaki at a place like Imola, that did set a worrying pattern for the rest of the year for them. It did. I think that was the first round where we all looked at the, at the state of the season and the state of play, and we all just went, uh-oh. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, there we go. yeah, it was like, because, like, again, it's another historically really strong Jazz Davies circuit. He's had he's done double victories around there before. Um, he, he's tended to win a lot of the times around Imola. That's a track he goes very well at. Ducati really do want to win that home round um, an awful lot. And Jonathan Ray came in and whooped ass. Um, and, like, and comprehensively, um, Davies tried. And you could see he was beyond the limit trying to hold Jonathan back. And he just couldn't do it anymore. So when Jonathan w- would go on to win both races there, take his first double victory of the season... Spoiler: There's a lot more of these in coming. Um, like it, it was, it was, it was the sign that everyone was looked at the board and went, "Oh no!" Um, it, it, it just looked like it was the beginning of the end, really. Because if Kawasaki are taking both victories there, then goodness only knows what's going to happen when they get to circuits they actually like a little bit more. And I think that was the first real sign of, of, of the, of the Kawasaki had gotten over the rev limit problems and found ways to, to work around. I mean, I remember Jonathan talking that weekend about how. Kawasaki had basically reworked the entire bike that weekend to try and, you know, mold it around the rev limit problems that they had have and the concessions that had come their way. And look what happened. Um, a, a double victory uh, on, on Ducati's home turf. And uh, by that point, I think Jonathan was about 50 points up going going into Donington. And we, we were saying, well, Donington's another Kawasaki round. Sykes traditionally is, you know, virtually invincible round there. Or so we thought, and we all just looked at the situation, going, "Oh no, this 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 could be the sign of where Kawasaki starts to rack up a few more of these." And uh, they did. Well, we had a we had a double victory at Donington Park, but it wasn't by any means the rider um, we expected at round six. We saw quite a few things actually at, at Donington Park. We saw mm. Ducati struggle quite badly um, for the large quantity of the weekend. We saw a ride of the year contender in race two, which we'll get on to shortly. Um, we saw British Superbike Championship wildcards from the top two in the championship at that stage. Bradley Ray, um, double winner there in the BSB earlier in the season, and Leon Haslam, because uh, Bradley Ray wouldn't stay in the top two. Leon Haslam most certainly would. Um, we saw Tom Sykes in a cape as he celebrated his Super Bowl record that he set on the Saturday morning. Um, but... I don't think we expected the ultimate race winner, Greg, of the two races. Because I remember Mm. we had you on the show leading up to the uh, Donington Park weekend. And we were both, I think, expecting Sykes versus Ray one year on from their their battle of a year ago when Ray ended Sykes' winning streak there. And I don't think it dawned on me until about halfway through the first race where I suddenly thought, could Michael Vandermark win this? Yeah. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem long, does it, since we did that show? I mean, when was that? May? I mean, that's gone so quick. Half a year, isn't it? Amazing. I can't remember now. You might remember better than me, but I think, did I say Ray was going to win one and Sykes the other? Yeah, but take the question we asked, because going into that weekend, Jonathan Ray had equaled the all-time wins record of Fogarty, and Sykes had equaled the all-time pole record, and we kind of asked the question, which of the records will go? That was Um, it, yeah. And as it was, it was only the pole record that went, and I think I, I expected Sykes to win the first race, um, from pole position, and then Ray to do what he did a year ago and maximise the reverse grid in race two better than Tom Sykes historically does, and win the second race. But an extraordinary weekend, a a breakthrough weekend for for uh, the Patty Yamaha Crescent team, and of course Michael Van der Mark. And I'm not sure what's more impressive, Greg. The first race where he he literally beats the two Kawasaki's in a straight fight um, in a three-way battle at the front. Or that second race where he proved it was no fluke and came from ninth on the grid to win again. He did, didn't he? I mean, it goes back to Imola, really, because they really got some good laps in on that new, larger Pirelli tyre, which, of course, was another novelty of 2018. They'd got more laps in there than everyone else, so they carried that data across to Donington. But obviously, completely different circuit, isn't it, really? Um, A circuit of two halves with its sweeping trainer curve section at the beginning and then the very steep start nature of the Grand Prix loop around the back with the S's and the Melbourne Loop and Goddard's. But they had got data on the larger tyres, so they carried it into Donington, continued using it there across practice. So that really helped them in the first race. It was clearly the tyre to be on. But as you say, the pressure was on. He'd never been in that situation before. Amazing first race. We did have some brilliant races, didn't we, this year? Mm. We'd had a fantastic race at Imola in the second race there. Davis and Ray banging into each other, real head-to-head before Ray ended up pulling away in the end. So then we've gone from that to Donington, where we had this multiple rider battle. Vandermark comes through and wins. So we're all thinking, what is going on here? I mean, it was brilliant, but we're thinking, how did that happen? And then he comes through again on the Sunday. I mean, there were a few contributing factors which helped him. Jonathan Ray was suffering arm pump quite badly. Mm. We stopped him behind top rack as well. And of course, he was the star you were referring to a moment ago. What a great race for him to get second there. Overtaking both of the Kawasaki Racing Team bikes en route to to a podium finish there, having collided with his teammate Haslam in the first race on the Saturday and gone down on the last lap. So, top rack, new star was born there. But yeah, Vandermark, amazing. Everyone else had to switch effectively. But this is pretty much what happened. They had to switch overnight to the larger tyre. So they were all learning as they raced, or as he had the data. But let's not take it away from him. He came from ninth on the grid, did what Jonathan Ray had done the year before. Uh, phenomenal weekend. And of course, at the same time, we sort of felt sorry for Alex Lowe's because we knew one of those riders was going to have to get that victory first. Mm-hmm. It ended up being Vandermark, but of course it happened on Alex Lowe's home soil, which rubbed salt mm-hmm. into the wound. Obviously, he uh, he sort of fought back pretty soon, didn't he, at Bruneau? But amazing stuff from Vandermark, and he was the man in the end who goes down in history as ending that Kawasaki domination at Donington. Hmm. It was. It was a terrific double uh, from Vandermark. And Dre, we have to talk about Toprak Razgatioglu's race two performance <laughs> uh, because it is one of my abiding memories of the season. A sensational ride, probably the one of the best single one-off rides of the season. Um, not that it was a one-off from Toprak. He did get another podium later in the year um, in Argentina. Um, but before he came into World Superbikes, I, I remember distinctly last year when he tested at Portimao and Jonathan Ray was speaking very glowingly about Toprak. I think he described him as one of the best natural talents he'd seen. Um, and we were looking forward to seeing what he would do on a superbike. He'd had not exactly had a, a bad start. He'd had a pretty solid start by any rookie standards in World Superbikes. But I think we all sat there on the second race on the Sunday at Donington, saw that performance from Toprak and suddenly thought, 
That is why everyone is making such a fuss about this kid. Yeah, I was watching the race too, and I was thinking, what does Keenan feed his talents? Um, <laughs> um, because, uh, yeah, like, as you say, Top Racket had a very solid start to his time in Bucks. He was finishing every single round. He was in the top 10 most of the time. Um, he was doing as well as he could do on a, on a satellite Kawasaki package. Obviously, not going to be the big boys package that, you know, Jonathan and Tom are going to be rocking up with every weekend. They're not going to have the same level of resources, without a doubt. But. Stop Rack was always getting good results on that bike and getting it into the top 10 frequently. This one came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, it's like he's he's carved his way through 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 the entire field almost. And like the last three or four laps is when we really saw him like in the battle of the leaders. Vandermark had cleared off a little bit by then, but you could see Jonathan was struggling. But Top Rack had just, had just come through like a bullet and, you know, pulled off a couple of really daring overtakes down the bottom of the crane of curves on Jonathan to take that second place in the end. He, like, I've got to say the thing with Top Rack is like he is such a talent, and when when the bike is plugged in properly, he is super fast, and he's incredibly entertaining um, yeah, in yeah. his in his own right. He's, he's a fantastic rider to watch. I remember, I remember we skipped forward to, to Argentina a little bit here, but when he when he had that podium finish there, he was sliding that bike through almost every apex. It was wonderful to watch, although also quite terrifying because you think, oh my god, he's going to have a phenomenal high side any second now, and it just never happened. He's you, you hit the nail on the head there, sorry to cut in, but you're right. It's the way he does it, isn't it, with Toprak? He's like Van der Mark, like Carl Fogarty was. It's the way he does it. He's not only Absolutely. picking off these these seasoned campaigners, multiple podium finishes and winners, um, overtaking them on a, a, a lesser bike, really, let's be honest, in some cases. Mm. But um, he's sliding his way around. He's spectacular, isn't he? He's brilliant. He is, and I'd say what about Toprak? What I've said about a few riders, particularly Mark Marquez, I say about these days, I say... You could watch him ride on his own around a racetrack and still be entertained yeah, by, yeah. by what you're seeing yeah. from him. Um, and he was the same in stock 600. He was the same in stock 1,000. Another thing we should remember as well, on a sad note, actually, is that this Thursday, just gone, the 15th of November, was the one-year anniversary since the passing of Toprak's father um, to continue, unfortunately, that, that tragic history around the Keenan Safoglu family. He's lost brothers. He lost his own father in a road accident. Toprak's father was killed in a road accident in Turkey on the 15th of November 2017. So just wow. bear in mind as well. Toprak's had to go through that emotional turmoil and it's still fresh in the mind. It's only a year ago and he's still come through and achieved these podium finishes despite that as well. Yes, and, and, you, and you do think as if you, you think like 2019 will be a big year um, for Toprak Raskatiko. With, with all due respect, it, it obviously feels like we're talking Leon Haslam out of a ride before he's even started. Uh, with Kawasaki, <laughs> because a lot of people are looking at Toprak as a potential factory Kawasaki rider in the future, whether it's 2020 or slightly beyond that, who knows. But next season, I think, will be a key season for Toprak to uh, to try and prove to Kawasaki's, you know, uh, to, the, to the factory as a whole that um, he is worthy of that promotion in, in the years to come. So Toprak is going to be a rider well worth watching next season, as I, as I say. You can watch him around an empty tar- uh, racetrack and still be entertained by him. Um, but we'll be watching him against the best in the world again uh, next year as he stays with Pachetti. You'll notice as we go through this season review, there are some race weekends that we'll talk about longer than others because a lot more happens. I think the one mm. we'll spend the most time talking about is up next, Bruno. Um, it was probably <laughs> the most newsworthy weekend of the season, um, largely surrounding the boys in green. But of course, there was a, a breakthrough and a very spectacular and very memorable moment for a rider in blue. Uh, which we'll mention shortly. Um, but a, a very uh, mixed weekend 
um, for Jonathan Ray, Greg. The highest of highs and the lowest of lows, I suppose. Um, let's start with the positives. This one had been coming for a while, it has to be said. Um, but it was race one at Bruno where Jonathan Ray finally broke Carl Fogarty's record for the most wins in the history of the Superbike World Championship. He's gone on since to extend that record even more. And it, it kind of boggles my mind when I think of how many races we're going to have next season. Jonathan Ray is absolutely guaranteed, surely, to be the first 100-time race winner in World yeah. Superbikes. That is surely coming um, before long. But what a moment that was, uh, Bruno. Like I say, it, it was a moment that was that was coming for a while. But even so, when it came at Bruno, a special moment for the greatest rider we've seen in this series. Yeah, because I remember when I started commentating on World Superbikes in 2015 on the Dorna World Feed, um, obviously getting all the stats together and everything else. And at that point, I can't remember the number now, but Jonathan Ray was nowhere near the top. And, you know, you'd look at Carl Fogarty's wins of 59, you think, wow, you know, that's the target. And you never would have believed that now, four seasons later, already, that would have been not just equal, but thrashed. Well, maybe thrashed is too strong a word. But actually, no, it's not, is it, to be honest? Because Ray's already pulling well ahead. He had his 50th win when he won his third title. I remember that one. A Magni Core in 17. Um, how many is he on now? I haven't got it in front of me. I don't know whether you've got that there. But... Uh, the, uh, I, the Wikipedia I want to say 74. Uh, yeah, let's have a look. Yeah. 50, yeah. It's but 17 I believe. Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. So I knew it was something like that. So Fogarty, I mean, I mean, isn't that amazing? He's already—he's not just. It doesn't seem long since he equaled Fogarty and surpassed it. He's on. He's 12 ahead already. <laughs> I mean, we've got three races next year with the new format, so that's going to blow all the records so out the window, isn't it? Nine race season next season, and as I say, to get yeah. to to get to the century. Um, next year, he'd have to win 29 out of 39, which at the rate, the rate he's going uh, at the moment is not necessarily out of the question. Um, although no. we don't quite know what kind of format these, these sprint races are going to take yet and how difficult it's going to be for Jonathan Ray to win them all. Um, but it is an extraordinary run that he's on. Um, and of course, it was Bruno where, where he, he broke that record, having seen his teammate Tom Sykes take the pole position um, in race one. He wasn't behind him for long. Um, in the second race. Um, now, <coughs> they were together in race two, as we know. They were both back on row three, and they stayed together until it all went wrong, uh, three or four laps in. Um, <coughs> Dre, it is probably the moment of the 2018 World Superbike Championship, the clash between Tom Sykes and Jonathan Ray, mm. not just for the incident itself, but for the fallout from it. Yeah, it, 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 that that was probably the marquee moment of the season in in many ways. It was it was like it was like the final nail in the coffin for the Kawasaki setup as we knew it. Um, not only obviously seeing Ray go down and crash after after you know contact of Sykes on the way back up Horsepower Hill, um, and Jonathan not best pleased uh, with Tom on the sidelines as he rode past again on the following lap. But not only that, it was also the coverage of it. I want to ask Greg about this one as well, because I think I first got it from reading, from following you on Twitter at the time, Greg. And it was it was the explosive interviews we got on Eurosport afterwards, not only from Jonathan, but also from Tom. I think Tom had basically just had enough at that point in time and had gone on this scathing rant talking about the set. Yeah, yeah. Called Perarima out, called the set out and... What was that like for you going through? Because obviously you've got 
you've got a lot more internals than a lot of people do. So what was what was that dynamic like when you heard the interviews for the first time and you saw how it was going down? <laughs> well, I remember actually um, watching those because obviously those interviews were carried out by Charlie Hispot, weren't they, on the Laguna Seca yes. pit lane? And I remember sitting in the commentary box watching them through. Um, and it doesn't always happen like this, but every now and again we'll sit in the commentary box and you can see the editors at Eurosport playing the videos out. So they're coming out on the, the screen in the commentary box as well. Mm. So I was sat there with um, James Hayden on this occasion because James Hayden and I commentated together on Laguna Seca. <laughs> and before we went on air, we watched the, the features that were going to be coming up in the show that day. And we knew they'd said some strong words because obviously I'd been, I wasn't there when they, when they said that to Charlie, but I'd been chatting with Charlie and he'd explain, crikey, you know, you, you don't want to miss these. These are, they've been pretty honest about each other here. Um, so anyway, James and I are sitting together in the commentary box watching these interviews going out and just looking at each other thinking, wow, you know, we, you've heard in the paddock, you hear things like this, don't you? I remember, again, when I came into the paddock in 2015, some people were saying, oh, those two hate each other. And I thought, well, let's, let's just see. Hate is a very strong word. Don't forget, these are two guys who went to each other's weddings. So there is a respect there deep down. And I like to think, you know, in the future, there'll be some sort of event, perhaps when they're both retired. And they'll be sitting having a laugh with each other and have their arms around each other. It usually ends up that way. You know, even Prost and Senna ended up missing each other, didn't they, in the end? Mm. But um, but right now, they, I think it's calmed down a bit now. But um, the tension the tension was high. Two very different riders, two very different crew chiefs, um, two completely different riding styles. And that of all the teams, even from when I was working in MotoGP before, you stepped into that garage and it was two teams. It wasn't one. It was one team in the initial layer of the garage when you step in the door at the back. And then as soon as you step into that front space, which is the bit you see on the TV, it felt very much like two garages. All you needed was a Yamaha Rossi-Lorenzo-esque wall. I mean, there was basically basically an invisible wall down there because it was two completely different teams and the way they interact with each other, it's just completely different moods. And obviously, depending on the results, some days those moods were even more contrasting the others than than on other days. But... um, you know, when then, of course, our reaction after hearing the interview was, oh, you know, what what's everyone going to make of this? We had the Kawasaki team contacting Eurosport to ask for a copy of the interview because they obviously wow. had everyone in the paddock talking about it. <laughs> um, all the journalists seeing it go out on social media. So they were responding to it and then asking the Kawasaki people themselves. Um, and the, the team, obviously, a lot of us saw it on Twitter, but the team wanted a copy of it as well to know exactly what's been said by who. Um, because this wasn't like an interview that had just gone out and had been printed somewhere and could have been misquoted. This was blatantly said in front of television cameras, not live, granted, but it had been said. No one was going to misquote anyone. It was there clearly on Twitter as well. And um, he thought, well, if the relationship wasn't already sour, it definitely is now. Let's also just on the other side of the story here. Let's be fair to these guys. It took them a long time, didn't it, to run into each other because everyone thought that yeah. was going to happen very soon in 2015. We saw a number of races did. between the two full victories where it was, I mean, I think of the race in Thailand, for instance, back in 2016. You know, hard but fair. That was a great race. Um, yeah. But yeah, they never, never resulted in either of them uh, coming off the road. Um, and Kat, uh, yeah, before as well, Jonathan Ray almost took, that was Jonathan Ray's fault, that particular one. He almost took Sykes off at one of the hairpins. Mm. And in fact, that cost them the race because Jordi Torres came through and won that one on the Aprilia. But then there's been other incidents which you could say were maybe Tom sparked it off. I mean, it was always going to happen at some yeah. stage. Uh, the one at Bruneau, I don't know what you guys think, but I think <sighs> Jonathan was very 
very adamant that it was Tom's fault and Tom vice versa. What did surprise me a bit later in the year, I think it was Argentina, is when Tom <laughs> jokingly said, oh yeah, Jonathan's had a great season, apart from when that idiot took him off at Bruneau. Yeah. I thought Tom was being a little hard on himself there because <laughs> well, I feel he could have given Jonathan more space in I, that incident. I likened it to an incident that, uh, Dre, I know you'll remember, I, I don't know, it was it was in Bahrain in Formula 1 this year when Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen ran into each other. Uh, and, it yes. was, and it was an incident where I thought, both of those could have avoided the accident if yeah, they really yeah. wanted to. You know, Jonathan Ray could have backed off. He was on the outside. Tom Sykes obviously could have given Johnny Ray more room if he'd wanted to. But I think both yeah. of them were of the attitude of, well, I'm not giving in. So either it's the old, oh, well, if either back off or we'll yeah. crash, you know. Yeah, you have process. to respect as well, don't you, exactly. in some ways? And, and that's what we got. The, the other sort of takeaway from that, right. Greg, I suppose, is yeah. once we saw those interviews in Laguna Seca, yeah. I think we suspected this already, but was that the moment where I think we all knew Tom Sykes' time at Kawasaki was up? Yeah, and I think, you know, some people would say, did that interview itself blow it? And I don't see it like that. I think he already knew He's his time was up, and that's lose. why he then felt, you know, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to say what I think now. Um, and yes, it was a vicious attack, wasn't it? On not so much Jonathan Ray, but his crew chief, Pere Riva. Now, there is no doubt Pere Riva is the head of that side of the garage and he is the team, not the team boss, but he's the boss of Jonathan Ray's side, if you like. Um, Sykes clearly doesn't like the way Pere Riva goes about his business. I'm sure the feeling's mutual. Um, and, you know, there is right, great rivalry between every element of that team. But, yeah, it was just a very personal attack, I suppose, wasn't it? Um, I suppose some people, you know, your armchair fan probably would have been a bit surprised, thinking, well, who's Pereira? What You know, what's he done wrong? Now, we don't know. We don't know every detail that happens inside the team. We're not in the meetings. We're not in the briefings. But from my experience, Pereira has always been a real gentleman, a very good man, a very smart man, um, a real family man, as well as a, a real professional. Is he determined to win? Absolutely. Um would I? Would he? Would he bend the rules? I don't think he'd bend the rules any more than any other crew chief or technical head. Is he going to push the absolute edge of the envelope to get what he wants? Yes, he will. Um, but he's a he's a really nice man as well. So, but again, you don't quite know what's happened behind the scenes. Um, all that was clear there was that you know this is not working out for either way. But the the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day. And I'm not taking sides here, but you have to do your talking on the track, don't you? And at the end of the day, Jonathan Ray's the one who's done more talking on the track. And I think it is it was time for Sykes to move on to a new challenge. It wasn't nice to see him struggling as he was. I don't think anyone would have liked to see that. Mm, yeah, the, the, yeah, that time wasn't big enough for the both of them, was it, in the end? And and yeah, I think I, I think I remember this we were, we were discussing at the time, Dre, we were saying that mm. you know, when when you're still delivering for the team and you know, you're giving them the results that they want. I think they can almost understand or they can live with you being a little bit uh, prickly or being not disruptive. That's probably the wrong word. But basically, if your results are justifying your behaviour, they'll they'll live with it um, because because you're good enough. We'll 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 we'll, we'll take the the attitude because you're delivering us fifty points a weekend. Um, once Tom Sykes got to the point where he wasn't delivering the results, um, Kawasaki, I think, presumably got to the point where we could do without this. Um, you know, we can just do without this aggro between our two riders. If we can get someone in who can do as good a job, yet not rock the boat quite as much, um, which I think is what they've got. 
uh, with Leon Haslam. We must, though, mention the other big story from Bruno because you'll notice, certainly Rebecca James, if she's listening, will notice that we haven't mentioned <laughs> the race two winner uh, of Bruno. The breakthrough for Alex Lowe's. Um, and the first Yamaha won two um, since the final race of 2011. Um, and, of course, the first in the uh, in its guise with the uh, the Crescent team and under Pate Yamaha um, between Alex Lowe's and Michael Vandermark. A big win, that, in, in the career of Alex Lowe's, uh, Dre. And I'm, I'm struggling to sort of decide in my head how I'd describe his season, ultimately. Um, because at the start of the year, his presumably his big goal going into 2018, Dre, would have been win a World Superbike race. That would have been what Alex Lowe's would have been coming into 2018, desperate to do. But I can't shake the feeling in my own head, and this is only my own opinion, that whilst he's won his first World Superbike race, we've kind of got a clearer idea now who is the better Yamaha rider, and it's not Alex Lowe's. Yeah, I mean, you walked into this season, those two were still quite evenly matched going into 2018, and we both had the impression, okay, this is probably going to be the year where Yamaha makes big gains, given we saw what was going to happen with the river limits and concessions. I think we were sitting there going okay, this is going to be the year. Um, this is going to be the year we're going to see what's what with these two. And they, Yamaha are probably set to make the biggest gain. They did. Um, but it, it turns out that Vandermark was the guy that would kick on and really show that you know he had another level in him, finishing third overall in the championship. Whereas Alex Lowe's no doubt struggled um, by comparison to his teammate. I mean... There's no coincidence about it. He finished 85 points behind Vandermark in the championship in the end. And it's a shame because I have a level of empathy for Alex because he'd been with that Crescent team that had been backing up from his Suzuki days. And mm. Alex had gone for a long time without a competitive machine underneath him. And he was still trying his very best to pull out decent results on a bike that clearly wasn't capable of doing that. Um, and when he finally does get a bike that was hey, capable of winning a race, he only wins one. Vandermark wins two, and just Vandermark just puts together a much more consistent season than Alex did, and it's a shame in the end because it's, it's made Alex look a little, probably a little bit worse in the grand scheme of things. Given that, again, I said Michael's had this breakthrough year, um, but I'm very glad he was able to finally get that first W and get that monkey off his back because and he'd he been did hate Vandermark he, he, in a straight fight to do it. Yeah, he did, and 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 that was a that was a nice moment for him because uh, yeah, it, it wasn't ideal that uh, you know he was going out of his way to uh, you know to he was playing second fiddle to Michael a lot that season. He, I'm glad he had his own little moment to get his first to get his first, which is I, I know how much that meant to him. Um, you know, big year for Alex in general, um, and that that was one of the real highlights for him that year to finally get that first win, and again beating his teammate in a straight fight, which you always want to do if you're a rider or anyone in motorsport, you always want to beat your teammates, and that was always is a great moment for him as well so um not the best season for Alex I think anyone would I think even he would agree with you on that one but glad he had a, a, a real breakthrough moment for him in his career like that it will become very difficult now across these final rounds of the season to try not to merge them all into one because that was the last, <laughs> that was the last race at Bruno that was not won by Jonathan Ray um, oh. as, as we get to Laguna Seca he, he embarks on this incredible 11 race winning streak um, and, and it almost gets to the point where we, we struggle to think of new things to say about Jonathan Ray um, mm. but I think it was at this stage Greg where we were now starting to ask when rather than if Jonathan Ray would win the title um, and it was also at this point where not only were Yamaha becoming just as frequent a challenger to 
Kawasaki as Ducati were. But of course, Aprilia came on strong again. Of course, Eugene Laverty, as we um, mentioned earlier on, had an injury and forced absence that was caused in that crash in the second race in time. He missed Aragon and Assen. Was probably not fully fit when he returned to Imola either. Um, but it was around Laguna Seca Bizarro time where we saw him on the podium for the first time. He took those back-to-back rostrums at Laguna Seca and Mizano. And I think we ended up having a very similar discussion to the one we had with Chavi Forres earlier. This is another rider who, remarkably, is not on the World Superbike grid as we sit here now for 2019. And this is a rider who, going back three or four years, was the championship runner-up in this very series. It's yeah, uh, it's it's it remarkable. A I'm almost GP runner. Yeah, well, I'm almost speechless because it is, you know, Loris Bass said in Qatar, he said, "There's got to be something wrong with the championship here." And by the way, <laughs> people always laugh at me because I'll try and always defend the championship. But you've got to be honest; it's not right when you've got, you know, when we left Qatar, we had. Let me not forget anyone here, but we had Marco Melandri, Loris Bass, Jordi Torres, Xavi Forres, Eugene Laverty. Savadori, I'm probably missing another one in there as well. Um, all, Eugene Laverty, I think I've already said, all without rides for the next year. Now, most of them, I'm pleased to say, have now got rides. Forres, not yet, but I'm pretty sure he'll be on the BSB grid. Savadori's gone to Moto E, hasn't he? I don't know whether he'll do anything else beside that, but we know at least he's got something. Um, Baz, we know he's been talking to Tyco BMW. I'd expect so has Xavi Forres, probably with Honda as well. So watch out for BSB rides, possibly for those two. Uh, Melandri's on the GRT Yamaha that's going to be interesting with Sandro Cortese's teammate but we still have no ride for Jordi Torres we still got no ride for Laverty so you know what's going to happen now I believe he was offered a BMW ride a few years ago and I don't know whether he turned that down or not but whatever it didn't happen then that has it hasn't happened again so I don't know whether that's linked or not but it's sort of academic now what will happen will we have Aprilia's on the grid there's a rumour going around that the Go 11 team will be running a couple of Aprilias. But even if they do, they're not going to be a front-running outfit, let's be honest. Um, other people are saying, no, Aprilia are off the grid. They're not doing anything next year. Um, what's Laverty going to do? Um, he could take a year out. Sometimes that might be a safer bet than, than going to something like BSB or World Supersport, which are both possibilities. Um, but there's no guarantee you're going to win. You need the right bike and team package, don't you? Otherwise, you could get swallowed up and disappear off the face of the earth if you're not careful. So there is the option of sitting out for a year, which might not be might not be the silliest thing in the world to do, actually. But Laverty, like all other professional riders, will have contracts in place with sponsors uh, who will be expecting to be racing. So it's a very difficult situation. And right now, we don't know what he's going to do. And I'm not sure he knows exactly what he's going to do. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I, mean, I hope he finds something because I, I still think he's a world-class talent. And um, I, would, I would have not complained at all if he'd landed the second Aruba Ducati ride alongside Chaz Davis, which I think was rumoured at yeah, one point as well. Because it. it went to Bautista. Yeah. Uh, and how do you go yeah. from being linked with one of the premier rides in the field to nothing? Um, it just seems extraordinary. Um, but that's the position Eugene Laverty is in at the moment. He was one of the form riders of the summer um, in World Superbikes. I know a lot, a lot of the summer was spent with the interminable long summer break. Um, but be that as it may, he was on the podium at uh, uh, Look at a second, and again at Mizano. That was in back-to-back races. Of course, he could have finished second at Mizano had he not had that problem coming out of the final corner, which allowed Chaz Davies to get him uh, in that first race of the weekend there. Um, Jonathan Ray, of course, is winning all the races as we go at this point. Um, Eugene Laverty would take pole position for the round at Portimao. 
um, before it went very badly wrong at the very start of race one when he tangled with Xavi Forres at turn two. Um, so he was he was showing promising pace, but yet again, there was always a sting in the tail waiting um, for Eugene and for Aprilia. Uh, but as I mentioned, Dre, Jonathan Ray was doing all the winning at this stage. Um, doubles at Laguna Seca and at Mizano, and another double at Portimao, and it was here where the famous charisma debate first came up, Dre. <sighs> this one. Um, yeah, Gregorio Levia, who is the sporting director of World Superbikes, would come out on the record and, you know, he said, oh, why, you know, why isn't, you know, Superbikes being more popular? And he mentioned Jonathan Ray and, you know, he isn't as charismatic as Valentino Rossi. Now, that's a very high bar to set. Um, <laughs> let, let's be honest here, being given that, you know, I've said it before and I will say it again. Valentino Rossi is the greatest showman I think motorsport has ever seen. I think his showmanship was what put, put MotoGP back on the map in the early 2000s. Um, and yeah, we all know Valentino Rossi is ridiculously charismatic and he, he's an icon of, of, of motorsport, of sport in general. Um, and he's the one bike rider that's truly transcended the sport. Like Every time you go to any bike meeting, you will see a sea of yellow everywhere, even if he's not racing. He's the only guy on the planet that really is in that league. Um, but I never got, I never got that 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 vibe that Jonathan Ray lacked charisma. I mean, as mentioned, his Eurosport interview after Bruno was, was was straight fire, in the sense of the, he he was not he he was more than willing to be bold, and you know be a little bit eccentric in order to get his point across. But this was also a guy that you know had, had been quite. It, could be quite ingenious. I mean, we got to Portimao, and then one round later in France, he wins the championship, and we had. I think my most my, my favorite biking celebration yes. I've seen in recent years, the fantastic poker table scene, um, where he's sitting around with, with with three of his mates in his old racing suits from the previous three years, and he goes all in, and it's and the four of the kind celebration happened. I think that was absolutely fantastic. I think it was better than almost anything we'd seen in GP racing for years and years. I think only Marquez's. Um, video game celebration, I think, is the is is on the par of that in recent years, in my humble opinion, anyway. So, I've never bought into this belief that Jonathan Ray is boring, and you know, I get it. Motorsport sometimes can be inherently boring because I think we're a little bit too wrapped up sometimes on who wins and not necessarily how they win, and looking at the nuance in in between those results. But uh, yeah, I, I love that. Jonathan totally embraced the whole oh I'm not charismatic um, line throughout the rest of the season as soon as he heard that he, he basically took the piss out of it for the entire rest of the season and so much so that I think a certain um, colleague of Greg's out there who was, who was working the Eurosport end of season yeah. Yeah, shout the, out to yeah. Eurosport for using Kiss Charisma for their <laughs> end of season <laughs> montage somebody um, ordered notes that. Which was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Talk about that. That is a man. I can tell you exactly who that was. That is a man named Tim Falden, who is a, one of our super editors slash producers at Eurosport. He's on Twitter, and um, that was completely his idea. I didn't actually. I've got to be honest. When it first went out, I didn't realise. But afterwards, he said, "Did you did you realise? Did you hear the music I put on there?" And I went back and had another listen. <laughs> that was um, yeah. That was uh, that was. That was a funny moment. It was a brilliant moment. And, and as Dre mentioned, it was race one at Magni Corps, um, where the title was wrapped up. Um, his weekends at Mazzano and Portimao were, were largely comfortable, although Vandermark certainly kept Jonathan Ray on his toes towards the end of race two um, in Italy. 
Um, Portimao was fairly comfortable on both occasions, although, again, Vandermark was close enough to keep Jonathan Ray guessing uh, in that second race. He finished about a second or two behind him. Um, but as Dre mentioned, he mentioned not so much who wins, but how they win. Well, it was kind of fitting, Greg, how Jonathan Ray won his fourth straight title because that, that first race at Magnicor was another demonstration, a lights-to-flag victory leading every lap. And it, it's for the second season in a row we've seen this now from Jonathan Ray. As the season goes on, he just gets stronger and stronger. And the way he won his title in, in Magnicor was just reflective of how dominant he has been, not just this season, but now for four straight years. Yeah, and to use another Formula 1 analogy... He's like the Alan Prost, isn't he, of World Superbikes. And actually, funnily enough, Prost was accused at times of being boring, wasn't he? Because of the calculated, cool, calm way he went about his racing. Jonathan Ray is exactly the same. He gets the job done and people can moan all they like about whether he has a lack of charisma or not. And quickly talking about that, I think it was a mistake by Gregorio Levia to say that. I don't think he meant to say that. It was slightly lost in translation. It didn't come out exactly how we meant it to come out. But he did say what he said. And, of course, for someone in his role, it was a bit of a difficult thing to say. Let's, uh, let's put it that way. Um, it was an unfortunate situation. So it, <laughs> it created some talking points for the media, didn't it? But, and some, of, some people were a bit harsh. I, I hope, um, you know, I don't think we were on Eurosport, in my personal opinion, even though the odd thing is, of course, that's where the interview went out. But Jonathan Ray wasn't even mentioned in Charlie Hisgott's question, was he? No. Ironically. Um, it did come from nowhere, but certainly certain members of the media, without naming anyone, were a bit um, were a bit harsh, I think, in their reaction to that. But uh, no, I think you know if Jonathan Ray does get criticism for being boring, can I understand where that comes from? Yes. Do I think he's boring personally? No, I don't, um, because it's just the way he goes about his racing. If people think it's boring, well, it's other people's job to go out there and stop him, isn't it? I know that's a bit of a classic answer, but um, that's the way he goes about. Is racing. Yeah, moving on to the first ever Argentine round, which is what we got uh, following Magni Corps. Jonathan Reyes, I mentioning, doubling up at Magni Corps. He did follow that uh, race victory that won him the title in race one at Magni Corps with a second victory on the Sunday. Um, a victory befitting the gold fairing that he ran um, on that weekend and for the rest of the season as it went. Um, Greg, a question for you because you were there. I mean, I have to say, the El Villacom circuit in Argentina, we watched it on TV and it looked spectacular um, because it's a new venue for World Superbikes this year. I think this is going to become a very popular venue, isn't it? I think they did a very good job indeed, especially if you consider Fruit all of the... poisoning notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you can see, well, though, having said that, I got food poisoning in Portugal this year. That was terrible. <laughs> oh. Uh, the, the, I was feeling awful on the Sunday in Portugal. Poor Freddie Spencer had to stop the car because I was being <laughs> throwing up on the side of the road. So that wasn't a great way to go into a live day of broadcasting. Anyway, um, but yeah, Jonathan Ray, of course, and others were real, weren't they, in, in Argentina? But um, no, the general consensus is they, they did a far better job than Termaster Rio Hondo, and I've got absolutely nothing against them. When I went there for the first MotoGP, it definitely had that feel of, ooh, is this sort of ready? Whereas... I don't think the Vidicom circuit really did. Perhaps on the Wednesday and Thursday it did. There was people sweeping the track. Um, it was still dusty. It was breaking up a little bit. I think we, we were quite lucky that we got away with that because it could have been worse. The track was breaking up in certain parts, um, but it could have been a heck of a lot worse. But the facilities and everything else, I mean, yes, it was all a bit temporary. But then again, you know, the media centre at Laguna Seca ran out of a tent for Grand Prix racing for years and years and years. And in a way, it sort of gave it the charm of the event. 
I think it was an excellent success, and I'm looking forward to next year and seeing how that expands. Of course, they're just ferrying in coachloads of people, weren't they? Um, Patty Mercado had a massive fan club there. It was unbelievable. But um, no, I thought it was really good. Great track, great facilities, and um, it can only get better, I hope, next year. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed the, the race that we got around there. As we mentioned, Jonathan Ray overcame uh, a bout of food poisoning to win the second race. Uh, on the Sunday, having won in slightly iffy conditions in race one uh, with some rain falling. That was where, again, we saw uh, the incredible confidence of Toprak Razgatioglu shining through as he came through to another podium in third. Chas Davies coming unstuck uh, as he tried to overtake Tom Sykes, hit a wet patch on a curb and down he went. Um, this was, of course, whilst Chas Davies was trying to secure second in the championship of uh, Michael oh. Vandermark. Uh, he would go on to do that at the final round in Qatar. Um, but it was here, Dre, when we saw Kawasaki wrap up the Manufacturers' Championship. Um, and we had that sight of, of Ray Sykes and Rasgatioglu um, at the side of the racetrack wearing uh, Kawasaki's latest celebratory T-shirts that they must be uh, fast running out of. Um, mm. But whilst Jonathan Ray does get a lot, understandably, of the, you know, the backslapping and the praise for how well he has done and how well uh, Kawasaki have done over the last four years, we shouldn't forget that Kawasaki as a manufacturer now have been at the top of World Superbikes for eight years, uh, seven, eight years yeah. now. I mean, it was 2012 where Tom Sykes was half a point away from winning the World Championship. 13, he won it. 14, he went to the final round having won, uh, having led the championship and then lost it to Gintoli. We are talking about a team that could, on had a couple of things gone their way, they could have won between them the last seven Riders' Championships in World Superbikes, and they have won the last four Manufacturers' Championships. It's a company and a manufacturer that has pretty much put all its eggs in the World Superbike basket, having had a history of MotoGP, and they are getting their reward for it. They really have, and I remember when there was a lot of outcry and there was a lot of, of negativity in the air when they left MotoGP at the, at the turn of the decade, and a lot of people were worried about them as the future, and to be fair, MotoGP was in a lot of hot water back then at that point in time anyway, only 17 full-time riders going into 2011. Yeah, and they, they weren't were... the only ones. No, they weren't the only ones. Suzuki obviously had moved on as well at one point. It was all a bit of a pickle um, for them, so, but Kawasaki focused on World Superbikes, and as we mentioned towards the end of this season, like they owe a lot of, of, of credit to Tom Sykes for basically making them the appealing manufacturer they were for Jonathan Ray in the first place. And obviously Sykes having a tremendous career in his own right. Obviously long may it continue with BMW, but he was the guy that really put Kawasaki back on the map. And then when Jonathan Ray came came along, they, they took it to another level and four straight manufacturers championships. Again, they've, they've, they, they could have very easily have had the last six riders championship, which, which is stunning. They've made a name for themselves again by basically being the premier brand for superbike racing. Now, not, not only in worlds, but on a domestic level as well, with Leon Haslam's success, over there as well they have now established themselves as as the road racing superbike brand out there now and i mentioned it in a, in a written article i put on motorsport101.com shameless plug that you know it seems to be that the sport is now building itself around trying to beat this team 
and you know Ducati with a V4 Panigale that looks almost custom built for this sort of thing um, you know HRC coming back to back Honda BMW having full factory support for the first time in donkey's years it all stems back to what Kawasaki has been able to do as a brand being the big fish in superbikes has helped them immensely and I've seen the positivity as a brand like, whenever I see Jonathan Ray fly back to Japan to visit the factory they're rolling out the red carpet for him. He's a god back there. We saw him at Suzuka as well, the eight hours this year. The the reception that he was getting was was massive. It was crazy. And, you know, on, on, on top of that now, because I, I watch IndyCar as well, when IndyCar comes on, they, have, they run a lot of Kawasaki adverts in the United States because their bikes are very popular over there. And Jonathan Ray's the guy on the poster of all the adverts they're selling out there. So it's made a massive difference the last Four years in particular has been like rocket fuel for the brand um, for Jonathan as a rider. I mean, hell, he was on BBC Breakfast earlier this year going viral about how he didn't have a riding license. And, <laughs> and of course, last year he was BBC Sports Personality of the Year's runner-up behind Mo Farah, which is an incredible achievement that a bike rider has finished second. That's unthinkable in given that you know, Britain's been kind of spoilt for sporting athletes in the last few years. So you can tie it all back together, but you could just say that Kawasaki is a phenomenal brand and Jonathan Ray has is, shot is them up to another level now where they are now the team to be. They are the marquee franchise of this series. And given how three of their biggest rivals have now made major power plays to try and stop him for 2019 with BMW, Honda, and Ducati all making big plays to try and Ducati, get back up. Let's try and stop it. Yeah, only, only one of the 10 best riders on the planet, you know, jeez. But, uh, you know, like, like even the all three, like, like three major rivals of Kawasaki have gone out of their way to try and, you know, stop this juggernaut of Jonathan Ray on a Kawasaki. It says a lot about the state of the series, and it's it feels like the series has got some buzz around it again, which is fantastic for bike racing for everybody involved. Yeah, we'll, we'll mention that as, as we wrap it up. But the season did come to a close, Greg, in Qatar, and... Jonathan Ray went into this weekend chasing more history. He could have broken his own points record. He could have broken the long-standing wins record held uh, by Doug Poland. As it was, he equaled it um, and didn't get a chance to break it. Um, uh, the season, I think a few people were getting towards the end of the season, kind of glad it was ending. I think everyone was a little bit burned out from so much Jonathan Ray dominance. Not that that's his fault, um, but he was just winning everything in sight. But... I don't think we've ever seen, Greg, a, and you were there, so you could tell us what it was like on the ground. I don't think we've ever seen a season come to a close in quite those circumstances in Qatar. It was unbelievable. I mean, you don't expect rain in a desert, do you? That's the no. first thing. Although I learned on the first the first Grand Prix I commentated on in Qatar, we had a few drops of rain in, I think it was one of the Thursday practice sessions. So... We, you know, we've had rain, and yes, 2009. Let's not forget the motor GP race was washed out. They put it on the Monday, but it wasn't just rain that we saw. That I was just I mean, obviously Qatar's a weird one anyway because we're on this strange schedule because everything's happening at night. So you'll sort of get, you know, Wit and I, for example, got to Doha one o'clock in the morning on. Let's get this right on the Thursday. So the Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So you get to the hotel sort of two, half past two, in our case a bit later because I drove us to the wrong hotel by accident, but we'll, we'll forget that. And move on. Um, <laughs> we've done that before actually in five years, so I suppose it's the first time for everybody. Um, got to the right hotel. So, you know, by the time you've gone to bed, it's sort of three o'clock in the morning. And then you wake up and 
late morning, early afternoon. I sort of deliberately always stay up a bit late on the first night to get onto main time. The reason I'm saying all this is because I'm trying to put into context how it all panned out because you'd wake up um, and the sun, it's the afternoon sun because sometimes you'll wake up at one, two in the afternoon. At least I try to do that. So I'm not too tired by the end. We get to the end of the day when we're actually going live that we're not knackered. Um, so I sort of get myself on a sort of owl schedule of being awake all through the night. Um, so anyway, it's about two o'clock in the afternoon, half past one on the on the Saturday, which obviously is the last day, not the Sunday. It's all one day before there. Um, and it, the sun wasn't shining brightly through the window like it normally does, because I was on the 19th floor or whatever it was of the hotel there. They're all high rise buildings. I thought that's a bit strange. You know, what what time is it? So I looked at my phone. It was sort of I think it was about one, half past one in the afternoon, which is morning, if you like, on race time and opened the curtains fully. And I thought, what? the hell is going on it was just dark clouds is that the little superbike podium i can see flying past my window <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean i mean some people are already at the circuit because some people from dawn have to go earlier so we, we were seeing images coming up on social media and you know it hit the circuit first it hit the sail first and then came across to where we were in, in doha um but it wasn't just dark clouds it was the strongest winds you've ever seen um sandstorm the rain the, i cannot emphasize how heavy the rain was and it just went on and of course the place isn't designed for any rain so when you get rain like that and it had already happened earlier in that week as well um, and flooded out shopping centers and you know created a real mess so i also lighted the qatari rider if you remember he was um, on the pedicini kawasaki a couple of years ago he obviously still lives in doha and he was on his jet ski in the street yeah, going down the street setting up bow ski. waves on your way into work do you um, and then, but it was just it was unbelievable. It was it was wasn't just like you know the UK. Sometimes you get a closed section of country road, and you've got to go around a diversion. It was a bit like that, but for massive stretches of road, and you had to go through it because there was no other way to go. Um, there's one point we actually ventured off the road completely. And we're bouncing over rocks and gravel, but you just <laughs> couldn't get through on the actual road. I've never seen it. We'll never forget that. It was just unbelievable. And then we're thinking this isn't going to happen now. You know, we think there's no way this is going to happen now. Then you're hearing mixed things and you're hearing it's happening. There's a delay. Then you're hearing briefly, oh, it's not going to happen. Of course, it didn't happen, did it, in the end? I'm, I'm not sure the Superbike race is ever well. going to happen. Oh, yeah, the, the satellite, um, people from Dawn were telling me they were in the TV compound and then just had a, their hearts skipped to beat when they saw the big antenna, which basically runs the event, <laughs> for beginning to slowly fall, like all happened in slow motion off the top of one of the little cabins where it was perched on the top of and just smash into a thousand pieces on the ground of the TV compound about two hours before we were supposed to be beaming satellite signals out to the world. Um, so it, Dorna did an amazing job. They had limited track cameras, but they got most of them going in the end to get the super sport race going. I mean, what a crying shame and tragedy it would have been if that race had been called off. And that, that, that was one of my races of the season. I've never watched a race yeah. with the tension like it, uh, with the with three very noticeable water splashes uh, around the yeah. racetrack. And I have to say, the, the video of, uh, of yourself and James Whitton behind the scenes commentators on it is brilliant. Um, because, uh, yeah, you can just see the tension of what's going on as Clazelle and Cortese uh, were battling for that championship. Um, and it was an extraordinary end uh, to the to the overall season. Of course, this is a superbike review, but what a super sport season we had! 
across uh, the Super Sport 300 season ended in remarkable fashion. I likened it. It was almost like our, a two-wheel version of Brazil 2008 going down to the final two corners uh, of the season. Of course, uh, Marcus Reiterberger winning the final Stock 1000 Championship. He will be in Superbikes again next year. This season ended with Jonathan Ray as your champion. 545 points. He fell just short uh, of the all-time record. Of course, the uh, Qatari weather saw to that. Uh, he did beat Chaz Davis to the title, though, by... 189 points um, with Davies in second. He That's, beat Van der Mark. It's crazy, isn't it? Sorry yeah. 181, did you say then, Lewis? 189 points, the difference. 545 points, 356. Unbelievable. I need to update my last notes in my folder because I always take a bit of a break after Qatar. But I mean, <laughs> isn't that ridiculous? Just incredible. Van der Mark was third overall. That's the best that Yamaha have done for a number of years. Tom Sykes, as I mentioned, first time outside the top three in the championship since 2011. He ended the year in fourth overall uh, with Marco Melandri really failing to uh, cash in after that double at the start of the year. He fell to fifth. Alex Lowe's in sixth, completing the top six of uh, two Ducatis, two Kawasaki's and two Yamaha's. Chavi Forrest, the independent winner for the year, uh, quite comfortably so in seventh, ahead of the uh, Aprilia of Eugene Laverty, eighth. Toprak Rascatioglu ends his first year in Superbikes in ninth. And Lorenzo Savadori, uh, who we'll talk about... Um, Myself and uh, Dre will talk about shortly when we do the news. Um, 10th overall, heading to Moto E next year. Um, a couple of manufacturers that I just want to touch on, and we can do that, Greg, in, in a way of talking about next year, because I wanted to touch on Honda and BMW's season. Um, but I think the easiest way to do that would be rather to discuss what's coming for them next season, because I think they'll be keen for us to uh, kind of gloss over their 2017. Certainly Honda will. Um, we started promisingly with Camille, you know, troubling the podium. Um, in Buriram before really failing to get anywhere close to that for the rest of the season because he's, he had his own injury problems. Um, but as Dre's already alluded to, a number of factories, including the two I've mentioned, Honda and BMW, are ploughing some serious factory resources to try and close the gap on Jonathan Ray next season. We've been talking amongst ourselves in the Motorsport 101 Discord that Dorna should be marketing the 2019 World Superbike season as Jonathan Ray versus the world as everyone tries to bring him down. Um, first of all, because I know in true bike life fashion, we've uh, kept Greg for way longer than we agreed. Um, but um, in the time that we've got before you leave us, just how excited are you for the 2019 season? In particular, the manufacturers that we've discussed who are putting some serious financial resource into trying to close the gap. Yeah, it's still early days, isn't it? We, we None of us want to get too excited too soon, but... I think, I mean, can it be as dominant as this year? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to have to wait. I don't think it's going to be quite as dominant. Would I be surprised if Jonathan Ray still ended up winning the title a few races early? If I'm really going to be honest at this very moment, no, I wouldn't. No. But I think it's fair to say the potential is there, more so than it was this time last year, that that is not going to happen in 2019. Now, we've got a factory BMW, as you've said. Yeah. Now, that makes perfect sense, really, doesn't it? They've got a new 1,000, uh, uh, S1000R. Uh, um, they want to showcase the bike. They're not in MotoGP in the same way Kawasaki's not. So, really, at minimum, they need to be in World Superbikes. That's exactly what they're doing. That's going to be a good motorcycle. You've got Tom Sykes, world champion, all the records you've discussed already. Marcus Reiterberger, loyal to BMW as they are to him. They'll get on well, I'm sure, about that. They're two good guys, um, and they'll push that project on. So, I can see that BMW... I think you can grab a few front rows and maybe a, a pole or two and uh, some podiums, maybe even the win or two over the year. Why not? Um, 
I don't think we'd be surprised if it did, really, would we? But let's see. It will be a learning year, so we shouldn't expect them to go out there and start winning multiple races. But they're going to be there or thereabouts. The Honda's more of a question mark to me. Disastrous two years, really. We've been waiting for a decade for a new Fireblade, and it's come, and it's been even worse. Mm. Um, now, horrendous, because, of course, they lost Nicky Hayden, and that, as well as it, the emotional effects of that for everyone involved, and it's still hard to believe Nicky's not with us. It really is. Mm. Um, but, of course, it really, from a technical point of view, without sounding too callous and cold-hearted there, it, it, really, hampered, it really hampered the Honda project. He was the man heading it forward, and, and the team was utterly lost. Um, I understand the 10 Carter team is now very upset and annoyed because they're out high and dry. They've got no team at the moment for next year. I don't even know whether they're going to be in racing or not. Um, Honda dealership in the Netherlands as well. 10 Carter is the biggest Honda dealer in the whole of Holland. don't think it will be anymore. So that's really going to have big effects for 10 Carter. And I'm sure we'll find out more over the next few weeks and months. But what do we have? We've got an Altea slash Moriwaki team. Now, of course, Altea won the World Superbike title with a Ducati in 2011 with Carlos Checa. In fact, the last Ducati title, for that matter, when they ran the factory bikes before Field Racing took over, the team running the Aruba bikes now. Um, but then, just to top all of this off, Moriwaki have a close relationship with the Honda Racing Corporation, HRC. So they've said, we'll come along and give you a hand. Now, quite how involved they're going to be, I don't give you know. you you know? as well. Well, yeah, that's another thing. I mean, that was a bit of a question mark, wasn't it? I spoke to a few people about that now and said, you know, what, what's going on? He's 38 years old, 37, 38 years old. Uh, but they said, you know, I mean, the thing is, Moriwaki's coming in to do this project. They've been planning it, pans out now for a few years, it seems. Um, he's their rider in the he Japanese must just be, Yeah, he must be heavily trusted by Moriwaki and, yeah. and HRC yeah. to, to do the job. And he does know the Pirelli tyres, so it's not, you know, it's not a completely just sort of, oh, you know, we're going to do you a favour and thank you, here's the ride. It's not completely that, but um, you have to think Camia will be the front runner and I reckon Xavi Forres will probably have his eye on that ride as well over the next year or so. I mean, certainly if, if Forres does go to Honda BSB, um, you know, I reckon there'll be some sort of link up there. So you never know, maybe that'll be his way back in. I'm going to make that prediction, but I'm not, I could be wrong. He might go Tyco BMW, let's see. Um, but it would the Honda thing would sort of make sense, I think, because him, uh, he and Kamiya are really good mates as well. So anyway, for now, it's Kianari and Kamiya. I think we're going to have to wait to see quite how factory the factory Honda is, if you know what I mean. I think if we get to the test in Jerez in January, which is the first one we're expecting them to be at, I mean, that's the first sort of question mark. Why are they not testing before then? So that's a little bit worrying, you could say. From you know, from a championship point of view, because we want them getting as much testing in as possible before Australia to be as high up the grid as they can be. Um, but if, I think if the crew chiefs and the data engineers and people like that are HRC people, then we can think, wow, this really is an HRC team. I'm leaning more at the moment towards the thought that it's going to be sort of more of a a lighter partnership, a bit like what we saw with Sean Muir Racing and BMW three uh, two years ago. They're supporting them, but I don't know whether it will be a full factory HRC team as we saw in 2002. I really hope it is, and the fact they're involved in any way is tremendous, but quite how factory it's going to be, we are going to have to wait and see. But it is brilliant. It's going to be really good to see them there. The HRC logos around the paddock, um, hopefully more often than not, and the BMW, that's full factory as well. The Yamaha, I've been thinking the Yamaha would be the closest challenger to the Kawasaki, but... 
people are saying that V4 Ducati's quick. Yeah, when have um, you ever seen a World Superbike win? They don't the way, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And of course, Alvaro Bautista uh, on board, which is another fascinating subplot. We cannot wait to see how Bautista gets on. There is a, 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 there is a school of thought that because that bike has been largely developed around the Ducati MotoGP bike, that it's not going to be as big an adjustment as perhaps feared for Bautista to adjust to a superbike. Of course, they'll have to learn the tyres exactly. he's used to riding Michelin's. Um, but there's a, there's a good school that, of thought that that, that bike will that. ride, kind of like the bike he's been riding in MotoGP this year. Um, yeah. Which, which is interesting. Uh, so, yeah, we look forward to seeing uh, how Bautista gets on. The man they're all chasing, of course, is Jonathan Ray, and this has been his year once again. A record break, a record equaling fourth World Superbike title. Of course, he will go for a record breaking fifth uh, next year. Of course, that's pretty much the only record now, apart from the pole record, that he does not have uh, next to his name. It has been a terrific uh, World Superbike season, and uh, I have to say, one of the highlights for myself, Andre, is your contributions on this show, Greg. Uh, as ever, we've kept you longer than we agreed, but we uh, we thank you very much for joining us once again. Uh, Greg Haynes of Eurosport and MCN, uh, many, many thanks once again for joining us uh, on Bike Live. At Greg Haynes on TV on Twitter, you should be following me already if you're listening to this, but if not, go follow him. Uh, the guy's a legend. Greg, thanks How very, you thank you very much for joining us once again. <laughs> I mean, that was a tremendous summary. Thanks, Lewis. That was great. I'll pay for that later. I'll check in the post. And Dre, good to chat with you as well. Always um, a pleasure, course, By following tradition, I'm going to have to you know, throw a question out to you guys now, just before the show ends. Um, okay. Very early days. We haven't had much testing. But if you had to put money on it right now, who is your money on for 2019? Ooh, me first? Um, yeah. It's it's hard not to bet against Jonathan on this one, but I think we're going to see just how good a bike rider Alvaro Bautista is. I've always thought he was a criminally underlooked MotoGP rider, and I think this is the golden opportunity for him to you know take Ducati and put them back on the top. So I can't believe I'm betting against Jonathan early on, and this audio will be used against me in a year's time. I'm almost certain of it. But I'm le- I have to kind of back Alvaro Bautista because I always have for years and years when he was in GP. So I'm gonna tentatively say Alvaro. Lewis, L- 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 tell me out here. Bring yeah. some like bring, yeah, like, bring some. That, that's his brother sat behind him, who's a big Bautista fan. Right? <laughs> telling him to vote for Alvaro. Well, in that case, I, I I can take the safe option and go for Jonathan Ray. Um, but I, I, I agree with Greg in that I don't think it's going to be as as comfortable uh, as it was this year. I think there are, because there are more races, there are more variables and more things that can go wrong. Um, we're fascinated to see how the sprint race um, it actually is carried out next year and how the grid's set up and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, it is going to be fascinating how competitive against Jonathan Ray will Leon Haslam be. Um, even at the age that he's at now, I do think he is riding at the best that he's ever ridden in his career, uh, Leon Haslam. I think he's a better rider than he was in his previous stints in World Superbikes, where, of course, he was once a championship championship. runner-up. So there's no question that Leon Haslam is a world-class talent. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes. I think the battle between the two Ducati riders is going to be brilliant um, because Chas Davis, of course, has been the clear next best in World Superbikes to Jonathan Ray for four years now. Will he still be able to claim that at the end of next season with a top 10 in the world, as Dre has mentioned, talent in Alvaro Bautista uh, coming in uh, alongside him? 
So many things to look forward to with uh, two extra factory Yamahas, with Cortese, the Super Sport Champion, and Marco Melandri, the new factories we've already discussed. So many variables um, that should make the 2019 season one to remember, but I am going to go for Jonathan Ray to win it, although he may have to wait until the final weekend this time to win the championship. Um, whatever happens, uh, we'll be back, of course, next year to, uh, to review all. And hopefully before the season starts once again, uh, we'll catch it once again. Uh, with the voice of the sport, Greg Haynes. Greg, once again, many, many thanks for joining us. And thanks to you guys. It was a pleasure. then huge thank you once again to greg haynes for joining us dre and i are going to stick around to do the news um because entry lists have been published this very week for the 2019 um moto gp moto 2 moto 3 and moto e uh, seasons because it is the first season of the new brand new moto e world cup which debuts uh at five rounds next season um five of the european rounds including a double header at the final weekend at Mizano. So it's going to be a six-race championship, um, the Moto E World Cup. Um, and we now know who is going to be on the grid. We now know the full rider lineup for the 2019 Moto E World Cup. 18 riders uh, across 12 different teams. Uh, and I'll give you the full list here in uh, uh, in order of the teams. Starting with Pramac, uh, who are going to be running Josh Hook, the Australian, and uh, former Moto2 and 250 winner Alex DeAngelis. Uh, Angel Nieto team are going to be running Maria Herrera and the former 125 champion Nico Tirol. Um The Avintia team are going to be running their current MotoGP rider, Xavier Simeon, alongside Eric Granado, the Brazilian, who's got Moto2 previous. The LCRE team are going to be running Randy Deponier, who of course used to ride for LCR in MotoGP, and Nicolo Canapa. Tech 3's e-racing team are going to be running the Spaniard Hector Garzo, who's uh, been Moto2 rider, uh, Moto2 rider as recently as this year, and Kenny Foray. Uh, the Trentino Grassini Moto E team are going to be running Matteo Ferrari and Lorenzo Sabadori. Uh, you might have heard us mention that uh, earlier in the podcast. We'll discuss him shortly. Um, Dynavolt are going to be running Jesco Raffin, uh, who's going to be running for them in Moto2 already this year. IO Motorsport are running Nikki Tooley. Uh, Estrada Galicia Mark VDS are going to be running the former 125 champion Mike D'Amelio. Uh, One Energy Racing, which is essentially the Spanish National Circuit team, are running Bradley Smith. Pons Racing are running Seti Gibernau. And Sick 58 Squad Course are running the Italian Matteo Cassedi. And I know what you're all thinking. Seti Gibernau? Uh, <laughs> Andre, this news broke earlier this week. Um, and for someone who... It's fair to say, in his younger years, was a fan of Sete. How do you feel about this? Um, <laughs> I'm conflicted. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm like Sete. I swear you're like 73 years old now. What are you doing? Um, but uh, no, like it's it, it's a great name to pull in for the series in the sense of like Sete Gibernau is, is a name that a lot of people know, especially that are my sort of age growing up with bike racing. Safe to say, I was somewhat of a fan as a child. Um, I'm over it now, honest. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, it's a great name for the series. It's a great recognisable 
Like, I mean, the, the game wrong is not the only one in there. Like, I'm, I'm actually surprisingly impressed with the quality of the field for a first year. There's a lot of of, 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 of recognisable names um, that are in the series. But Gibbonow probably tops the lot as a guy that obviously was Valentino Rossi's nearest rival for a good two or three years um, in the peak of the four-stroke era in MotoGP. So that is a that is fantastic that he's coming out of retirement to you know put his name and and, and race in a, in a brand new series like this. And it's going to be very fun to see where he ends up and, and all of this. Yeah, the, uh, the calendar, just briefly, just to uh, release you that. They are going to be testing at Jerez, uh, 23rd, 4th and 5th of November. So as we're speaking, uh, in a week's time. So that's next Friday, Saturday and Sunday. They're going to be testing... Um, at Jerez alongside Moto2 bikes um, Moto2 are also going to be testing in uh, mid-March and at the end of April again at Jerez um, and then their race meetings next season will be at Jerez on the 5th of May Le Mans on the 19th of May these will all be uh, in support of MotoGP 2 and 3 um, Satsuring on the 7th of July Austria 11th of August and then the season finale for Moto2 e will be at Misano on the 15th of September where they will race Twice. twice the races will be approximately 15 minutes um so 15 minutes plus a, plus a lap um two free practice sessions on friday a qualifying session on the saturday and the race on the sunday which will take place before moto 3 so if you're listening to this in the uk moto e races will probably be around nine o'clock on sunday morning um there, there are some other riders some other names that stand out there dre one of them who we've already sort of touched on briefly without really discussing them at length we did wonder what lorenzo savadori would be doing next season Mm. I think that's quite a good pull for Moto E, that. It is a good pull for that. Savadori, former rookie of the year in World Superbikes, and just generally a, a really solid all-rounder that's capable of, you know, top top eight finishes in Worlds on a, on a, on a regular basis with the Aprilia team. He was, he's a very solid bike rider and a nice pull to switch back over into the series again. Um another guy hey for his career prospects a, a, a moto e title win could promote him down that ladder instead of maybe the world superbike ladder which obviously was he was i don't think he was ever really going to get into you know top flight machinery on the pretty that's only been going downhill or trending down for the last couple of years so for savadori that's a nice pull for the series and a nice pull for savadori personally it's a i think it's a very good fit for him yeah it, there yeah. must have been some a prettier input in that because of course he's gonna be racing for the grassini Moto E team, Grassini, of course, are running the Aprilia MotoGP factory team. Aprilia, of course, had been running Salvadori in World Superbikes, and we know they are fans of him. Um, and as Greg has told us moments ago, it doesn't look as if Aprilia are going to have any kind of World Superbike uh, input next year, which obviously leaves Salvadori out in the cold a little bit. Um, mm. But amongst this grid, we have four former MotoGP riders, including Gibbon Alcos, was twice a runner-up in the world, a Moto3 world champion, um, and we have a 125 champion. Nico Torello, of course, was 125. He wasn't Moto3. He was the last Moto3, a 125 champion before it changed. Uh, two world endurance champions in Josh Hook and Kenny Foray. And a former European Moto2 champion. Because it's a completely new bike with new tyres, whole new format, it is almost impossible to predict who's going to win this class. But let's have a go anyway. Um, <laughs> it, it is such an eclectic mixture um, of, of riders. I'm trying to think of in terms of who's going to win this, the rider who's been riding at the highest level most recently, if we're going to try and even come close to predicting who's going to win this, or pick a favourite at least, I mean, Bradley? That was my first thought. My first thought was Bradley Smith. I think he's a real thinking man's rider. I think he's a really intelligent rider. I think 
I mean, he, he's better. Than obviously, he's obviously way better than being a test rider for KTM and and and, and a prettier and whatnot, and and being on that sort of level. I think he's clearly better than that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think it's a good fit for him to keep his name in the shop window. I think he's a very intelligent rider. I think he's a thinking man sort of rider i think he's a grafter and i think those qualities are going to be important if you're going to be running in a in a brand new series that everyone's kind of on the same page here. i don't think anyone really knows what to expect um going into you know going into the first weekend and the first testing sessions that are coming up it's all it's going to be a learning curve for everything Bradley could be the kind of guy that I think could adapt quickly and could be an immediate success. And I think just pound for pound, I think he's the strongest rider in terms of overall quality in the series. So for, for me, riding closest to his peak as a rider, isn't he? Um, yeah, still only 27 in, in, in his career with the greatest respect. I mean, it would be great for motorcycle racing if Chibinow is up the front. Uh, oh, God, yeah. It would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> but we shall see. Um, before we move on to the uh, MotoGP 2 and 3 entry list that have been released as well, um, just give you some details about the bike itself, because I know some have been asking on the Discord server about this bike, the uh, mm. Energica uh, Ego Corsa uh, that the Moto E riders will compete on. Uh, it's got a battery capacity of around 20 kilowatts. Um, it's got power of up to 120 kilowatts, around 160 horsepower this bike will have. Brembo brakes, Olin suspension, Marcassini wheels, maximum speed of up to 270 kilometers an hour, which is just under 170 miles an hour. That ain't, this. that ain't slow. I mean, that, that is a fast. That is a fast motorcycle. There's no doubt about it. that. Reminds me, statistically, that's about what the old 250s used to be running back in the day. Around that sort of power output, oh, around that sort of. I wouldn't be surprised if these bikes are certainly around, sort of between Moto 3 and Moto 2 pace. Yeah, that seems about right, and that's hard. That's hard. I mean, again, then uh, let's not forget at the end of the day, this is still. A, a bike that's in road bike form and is only going to get faster yeah, as the tech advances. This is year one, and these bikes are fast out of the box. It's a bit like Formula E, and people were like, oh, well, these Formula E cars are so slow, but then people realize they had GT3 level speed right out of the box. And of course, their second generation of car is debuting next month, and they're already a quarter of a second faster over a, over a 250 meter drag race compared to the old car. So electric tech is moving on very quickly. Um, and in a handful of years' time, who knows what they're going to be pumping out in terms of performance? I mean, we're already looking at 140 horsepower and a 100. 170 mph top speed they're only going to get quicker and that's very impressive for a bike that not only is you know not going to be the, the easiest thing to turn because obviously they're going to be heavy due to the amount of batteries they're running but that's 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 an awesome tech showcase for the series so far and yeah I, again i cannot wait to see how it develops and how it and how it kicks on from here because if it's starting out like that then it's only going to get better as time goes on <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it is going to be. Yeah. It's going to be tremendous to watch. Uh, the MotoGP two and three entry lists as well have been published uh, this week, so we'll we'll run you through those. The MotoGP entry list is really no great surprise to you. The only because uh, we pretty much confirmed every rider already, but the uh, one or two numbers have changed that you'll uh, need to look out for next season. Maverick Vinales is one. He's changed from twenty five to twelve. Um, he's basically said that that was the number he rode as a child, and he wants to basically change everything for next season to try and uh, change his fortunes because he's going to have new crew chief um, and he's even going to change his number to try and bring a change of fortune. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, you're going to have to look for number 12 now from Maverick Vinales. Um, Juan Mia, of course, comes in. He's going to be running the 36 that you're used to seeing him on through his career so far. Um, Francesco Bagnaia, uh, you know, he can't run his uh, current number 42 because uh, Alex Rins runs that. 
And he can't run his previous 21 because Franco Morbidelli runs that. So he's nearly <laughs> decided to add the two together. So he's going to run 63. Um, <laughs> That's actually quite clever. <laughs> yeah, uh, for Pramac. So yeah, Banyai will be on 63. And Miguel Oliveira um, can't run the 44 because Paul Espargaro is on it. So he's going to double that and run 88. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, genius. so Miguel Oliveira on 88 I still can't quite get over looking at that entry list the bottom two riders 93 and 99 both Repsol Honda team Mark Marquez and Jorge Lorenzo uh, which is going to be fantastic um, for next season Moto2 um, I'll give you the full entry list because of course some of these riders you might not be aware of Lukas Tuljevic is going to be the German rider for Kiefer Steven Odendahl NTS Andrea Locatelli stays at SL Trans Baldessari stays at Pons Jorge Navarro goes to speed up. Luca Marini and Nicola Bulliger are the two Sky VR46 riders. Bulliger will be running number 11 uh, next year. Tom Luti will be running number 12 back in the uh, Moto2 class with Dynavolt. Joe Roberts will be riding for the team that is quoted as the American team uh, with Joe Roberts <laughs> on number 16. That is literally its name uh, in the entry list. Oh, Chad Ricardo Luce, the Andorran Angel Nieto. Demis Aki Pratama, the Indonesian at the uh, Team Asia squad. Fabio Di Antonio at speed up. Sam Lowe's at Grassini. Schrotter will be the second uh, Dynavolt rider alongside Luti. Simone Corsi stays with the Tasca team. Ika Lacrono will be the second team for the Americans. Uh, Enea Bastianini will be the teammate to Locatelli at Italtrans. Uh, Sonkiat Chantra, the tie rider who was the top 10 finisher in Moto3 as a wildcard this year. Uh, he's going to be the second team Asia rider, replacing Carol Idan Pawi. Um, Augusto Fernandez. Uh, it's going to be the second Pons rider. Brad Binder is going to be uh, Red Bull KTM IO's lead rider, we think, next year. Um, with uh, Jorge Martinez, his teammate, uh, the Moto3 champion. Uh, Tetsuka Nagashima stays at stop and go. Uh, Stefano Manzi will be staying at forward, uh, hoping to reduce his number of crashes from next, uh, this year. Bo Ben Schneider switches to NTS. Philip Ertl and Marco Bezzecchi are the two KTM Tech 3 riders. Uh, Alex Marquez stays at Mark Yes, Dominic Agata is going to be the uh, replacement for the forward NBA Grista team for Romano Fanati. Uh, Remy Gardner is going to be riding for Stop and Go. Kyrill Inampawi joins the Spanish National Circuit team, uh, running as a Petrodas Sprinter Racing. Jake Dixon, of course, the British Superbike runner-up of this year, joins Angel Nieto. And Xavi Fieche will be the teammate to Alex Marquez at Estrella Galicia. Mark VDS. Try and pick a winner out of that lot. Um, Moto3 it's going to be even harder to predict. Um, and uh, I'll give you the names very quickly. Rather than telling you the teams, it'll be easier just to tell you their names. Um, Jean Messier, Dennis Foggia, uh, Sergio Garcia, Philip Salak, Celestino Vietti, Tony Arbolino, Andrea Migno, John McPhee, Gabby Rodrigo, Kazuki Masaki, Nicola Antonelli, Tatsuki Suzuki, Raul Fernandez, Kato Toba, Darren Binder, Marcos Ramirez, Aaron Canet, Lorenzo Dallaporta, who's going to win the championship. You heard it here first. Uh, Ricardo Rossi, whoa. Romano Fanati, Chan Onchu, Tom Booth Amos, Ayuru Sasaki, Alonso Lopez, Albert Arenas, Makai Yachenko, Vicente Perez, Ai Ogura, and Jakub Kornfile. Again, you'll be thinking one thing. Romano Fanati. Uh, now, he's he's going back to Moto3. Now, he's found a job with the Snipers team that sacked him after he uh, tried to uh, run Stefano Manzi off the road at Mizano. But he's going back to Moto3. Um, I mean, so many things we could ask, Dre. I mean, Fanati going back to Moto3 um, seems like a... Almost seems pointless to a certain extent because we've seen everything we really can see out of Romano Fanati in Moto3. But then again, he should really be grateful he's got a job. Um 
a lot of people were outspoken. A lot of people were incredulous that Ronaldo Fernandes has found another job for next season. But surely we're at the point now where surely we can at least not. We can never really forgive what he did, I suppose. But we shouldn't really deny this guy's right to to ride for a living again, should we? Well. I always had the feeling that that two-year suspension was never going to hold up. Um, these things always get knocked back on appeal. Um, you know, my logic's always been let the heat die down a bit and then, you know, quite quickly chop the penalty down a bit. And, you know, let's be real here. Fanati is still only 22 years old. He's still a talented bike rider. That's never been the problem with Fanati. He was always going to get a second chance from somebody. And I always thought the retirement was a ruse. Um, I, I, I never really bought that he was actually going to retire. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I'm not surprised that he's back in Moto3. Cause I don't, I mean, I had a feeling that a lot of the Moto2 doors would shut down, um, because they like to tie their guys up quite quickly, which it, it would make sense for him to do that anyway. You know, given the fact that, uh, it's a brand new bike, they want to get their, their rider lineup sorted as quickly as possible and, you know, get them on bikes and get them sorted. But <sighs> it, I don't see the point of him being in Moto3. He's probably going to walk in there as title favorite next year, given his experience in the class, given his quality on that bike. He, he, he can win a lot of races on paper. Um, he's very good at that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I never thought the two years was going to hold up. I, 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 never, I never thought that was actually going to be a thing um, in the in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, I mean, it's good for him. He's gotten another chance. I mean, I hope he doesn't throw it away because a lot of guys wouldn't get that second chance. And I think Fanati's talent has bought him that second chance. And I, I hope he, he maximizes it and he's able to restore his tarnished reputation. Yeah, let's yeah, hope so. Let's he's, hope. I, I mean, I... I've always, perhaps more than most, uh, spoken up for the undoubted talent that I think Romano Fanati has. Um, mm -hmm. He's just a bit of a muppet on, on occasions. Yeah, pretty um, much. I think that's pretty much the best summary. Um, so, yeah, I, with all sincerity, I hope he goes back into Moto3 and I hope he does well. Um, mm -hmm. Because I, I, I think he still has a, uh, he is a rider that has a lot to offer Grand Prix Motorcycle Racing if he can get his head screwed on. Um, so, so let's see how he goes. It does throw another variable into what is already, a, a, again, an impossible Moto3 championship to predict um, next season with, uh, what, four of the top five, I make it, moving out of this class. Certainly these top yeah. four moving out um, into Moto2 next year, as well as uh, Philip Ertl, as well as Nicola Bulliger. One rider, by the way, it's less of a secret after today because uh, he went well in free practice as a wild card, but one rider to keep an eye on. Keep your eyes, believe me, on this, on Chant on Tune. Uh, in Moto3 mm. season, the young Turkish kid who's only going to be 15 when he uh, rides at the start of next season for Red Bull KTM Ayo. He is the Red Bull Rookies Champion and he is going places. Believe me on that. Um, to, to a rider who's at the very different end of his career, because this weekend it's the Valencia Grand Prix, um, which has been basically taking place in pissing rain uh, all day so far today uh, in mm -hmm. Spain. Um, we would preview the racing we're going to get this weekend, but really it's a with all due respect, it's still going to be fun to watch. It's a bit of a dead rubber because all three titles are decided. It's really, I think, for many people, a special weekend because it is the swan song, the final farewell as a race, as a racer in MotoGP before he becomes a test rider of Danny Pedrosa, who um, was inducted into what is essentially the MotoGP Hall of Fame on Thursday. It's the he is essentially, essentially titled the MotoGP legend, which is what the Hall of Fame essentially is. 
Um, mm-hmm. And despite what some people have said, I think, Dre, this is the very least Danny Pedrosa deserves um, for what he has offered, not just to the MotoGP class, where he's done everything but win the championship, um, but, of course, uh, a 250 champion as well, um, a 125 um, winner as well. This guy has been one of the most successful Grand Prix racers. Forget which class, just cover all classes. One of the most successful Grand Prix racers of the last 20 years. Um, and if that's not a MotoGP legend, I don't know what is. No, I, I, I'm in, so I'm in total agreement. He, like, he is one of the best riders we've ever seen. And I've, I, I've, I said it on Twitter leading up to this race. Danny Pedrosa is a genuine sporting marvel and like i'm not sure there'll ever be another talent quite like him we are talking about a five foot two seven stone man weighing a hundred pounds soaking wet who is able to throw around a 160 kilo 260 horsepower 220 mile an hour prototype as well as almost anyone we've ever seen i mean like he is the biggest victim of the incredible surge of talent we've had in in GP racing in the last decade. Let's not forget, you can probably trace back the rise of Spain again as a GP country down to Danny Pedrosa. The guy that started the ball rolling was Pedrosa when he debuted in 2006 in the top flight, coming off three world titles he'd already gotten in 125s and 250s. Pedrosa won as a rookie and he would go... 13 years in a row winning a Grand Prix again in the top flight. That ushered in Jorge Lorenzo. It ushered in Mark Marquez a few years down the road. And now you look at the you look at the GP standings, half of the top 12 are Spanish. Marquez, Vinales, Rins, Lorenzo, Pedrosa and Bautista. And three of those guys should probably be a lot higher than where they actually are in the standings this year on current ability and form. Pedrosa was... Like, like Pedrosa is just an incredible talent and maybe he was a little bit too loyal to Honda over the years, and that may have what stopped him from winning a top flight title, because I think his prime was really when Yamaha had the stronger motorcycle. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo, again, is an incredible talent. Valentino Rossi, needless to say, is the greatest we've ever seen. But Pedrosa was an, like, Pedrosa is an incredible talent. He's He's been able to win and win and win for years and years he's in the top eight all time on 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 the all-time wins list over 50 career victories over 30 in the top flight very unlucky not not to have ever won a top flight title but he's been in the top three seven times in his in his top flight career he has been a model of consistency in a sport that has often lacked it and um i i salute him on his hall of fame induction he he, he, he moonwalks in there backwards um about again just given his level of ability he's absolutely a first ballot hall of fame he's one of i think one of these eight or nine best bike riders to have ever walked this earth um and yeah I, like any argument saying that he isn't i think is just wrong quite frankly like pedrosa is a legend and he he absolutely deserves his hall of fame induction he's an incredibly important rider in the history of GP, and I'm glad he's been honoured and treated as such. Yeah, I'll give you the numbers. Yeah. Two-time 250 champion, uh, as well as a 125 world champion as well. Um, 294 Grand Prix starts. That will be 295, uh, assuming he makes it to the grid on Sunday in Valencia. 54 career wins. Wouldn't it be just a fairy tale finish for him to go out with one more to keep up that record? Because he won in Valencia last year. It seems unlikely, but we can all dream. Uh, 49 career pole positions, 64 fastest laps, 153 
podium finishes across <laughs> four classes. Um, uh, and his first win came uh, at Japan. Um, so I'm presuming that'll be Suzuka 2001 uh, in the 125. So he's got a winning career spanning 17 years um, in the Grand Prix paddock. Uh, and he's pretty much been a winner uh, throughout the entirety of that, really, until this year um, when he's found life a little bit difficult. Um, and. One other point I wanted to make about Danny Pedroso as well, Dre, is that we've, we've already spoken on this podcast about showman in motorcycle racing. Danny Pedroso was never one of those. Um, no. But so many times over recent years, and I think the, the one day that I sort of encapsulated this was that day at Sepang in 2015, where all sorts was going on around him, all sorts of controversy was going on around him, all sorts of people were behaving themselves in ways that weren't really in the best interest of the sport and weren't reflecting pretty well on the sport. Mm-hmm. Danny Pedrosa, I know there's that famous mistake he made at, say, in Estoril in 2006, but that was a mistake that any rider can make on a racetrack. But Danny Pedrosa, mm-hmm. throughout his entire Grand Prix career, as far as I can see, has always handled himself as the consummate professional. He is a true <laughs> class act on and off the motorcycle. No, he completely is. I, I, he's one of the few guys in, in bike racing I have never, ever had a bad word to say about him as a person or as a professional on or off the track. And this is this is coming from a guy that was in a blood feud with Jorge Lorenzo in, in the early days of their GP career to the point where the King of Spain had to force him to shake hands because they were fighting over, over Spanish tabloid inches. It wasn't ideal, but Pedrosa has always carried himself as a consummate professional. He's already he's always been a classy customer, um, and he's been a tremendous ambassador for bike racing, uh, and for, you know not just for MotoGP but for Honda, for Repsol as a brand guy. He, he like again, I have never heard anyone ever say a bad word about Danny Pedrosa as a person, and he's been in racing for eighteen years. <laughs> like that is a very very rare breed of person to be able to do that. I. I, he 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 is a class act. He always has been, and like he, I, whatever he decides to do in the future, obviously alongside being KTM's test rider, he's going to be a very valuable asset to that team, no doubt about it. I mean, you, you, there's no substitute for experience, and he's got bucket loads of it. But um, as you say, a, a, a complete class act on and off the bike. I've never ever had anything questionable to say about Danny from that from that aspect. And yeah, um, the, the the amount of glowing words that the the, the the peers in the paddock were saying about him at the press conference on Thursday says it all. That you know he is he's been he's universally respected and appreciated for his achievements. Absolutely, we wish him well on his final world uh, world championship weekend as a MotoGP rider. Uh, he's, as I say, been an absolute credit to the sport and to himself for so many years. Uh, we thank you, Danny Pedrosa. Uh, for all of the memories um, we have three more Grand Prix to go uh, as I mentioned this weekend and uh, yeah basically they're all racing for fun it's going to be like the last day of school um, this weekend oh, yes. in Valencia MotoGP Moto2 Moto3 all to come of course championships already decided Matt Marquez Francesco Bagnaia and uh, Jorge Martin uh, will uh, look to uh, end their years as everyone will on a high this weekend whatever happens we'll be back next week for episode 88, so it'd be kind of fitting if Jorge Martin does win this weekend. Um, with 88 <laughs> next week, reviewing the final MotoGP weekend of the season. Um, before then, though, of course, Motorsport 101 returns. Um, episode 169 earlier this week, um, looking back on uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix. Don't think anything of note happened um, down at Inter- no, Lagos. Nothing. Um, 
for, for, for King and RJ to talk about. As, uh, so glad uh, I missed that week. Oh, as Lewis Hamilton <laughs> took victory and um, yeah, 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 Max yeah. Verstappen, depending on which side of the fence you were on, threw a victory away and then threw hands afterwards uh, at the guy who he felt <laughs> costed uh, Esteban Ocon um, after the race. It was quite a scene. Uh, and into Lagos last Sunday. Uh, King and RJ had the full rundown on that, as well as, and I want to get this in because I've been a fan of his my whole life, Jensen Button's championship winning Super GT. Yes! Um, and he wasn't the only one, with all due respect to his teammate, whose name I don't know. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm a Jensen Button yes. fan, damn it. Um, yeah, so, yes, uh, so congratulations yes. uh, to JB for um, winning a title in, uh, in Japan uh, at Twin Room Mategi. Uh, that was all covered as well um, on uh, on Bike Light, uh, Motorsport 101 this week. Um, and it's a good job Dre was on it because uh, RJ had uh, a lot of fun telling us all about the uh, Spaniard who's going to be appearing at the Indy 500 next year. Really? Um, uh, yeah, who'd have thought it? Um, but episode 170, um, the uh, episode named after Simon Whitlock's exploits at the Grand Slam of Darts earlier this week, yes. where he hit 170 with the line regularity. Um, <laughs> much to my disappointment because I was hoping Glenn Durrett would make it through and that's the reason he didn't. Um, yeah, but um, but yeah, episode one seventy coming back to Motorsport Spot returns next week. Um, any thoughts, Trey? <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a skip week. A You've one. got a week till Abu Dhabi, so um, yeah, good luck, mate. I, um, yeah, like I, I chose a bad week to come back, didn't I? Um, well, we, there's Macau. <laughs> there is Macau, and that's probably going to be the focus of next week's episode. We did a we did a Macau special last year as well. In all fairness, so that will probably be the focus, obviously, with the. Uh, with the Formula Three gun, um, probably taking centre stage on that one. Kind of my lot, Mitch Schumacher. Yes, please, God, please get home safe. That's all I ask. Um, that's everybody in Macau because we, we all know how dangerous a racetrack it can be. Um, so yeah, hope everybody gets home safe first of all. But yeah, probably the Formula Three guys most likely taking centre stage with Mitch Schumacher, Dan Tickton, kind of my lot. And if it's anything like last year, then well. <laughs> Carnage will probably yeah. ensue. Um, so hopefully we get some safe. But yeah, the Macau Grand Prix will probably headline. I'll be back on next week's show as well, which I know you're all dreading. But um, <laughs> I'll be I'll be back to spearhead the show as well. So hopefully that'll be fun. And yeah, who knows? I'm sure something will come up between now and Monday. We always find the way to, to shit house our way through it in the end. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we do. Motorsport 101 episode treble 20, treble 20 bull next week with me. Yeah, we look forward to that. Uh, in episode 88 of Bike Live to come next week as well, reviewing the MotoGP season finale. That feels sad to say. Um, yeah. In Valencia. Um, and, of course, the testing, which is live on BT Sport if you're in the UK to uh, to follow. I honestly, I'm looking forward to that just as much as the racing, to be honest, Ray. Tuesday morning, uh, live on the telly to watch Jorge Lorenzo on a Honda for the first time. Um, it's be gonna, fun. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to see Banyaya on a Ducati, Oliveira on a MotoGP bike, Juan Mir on a Suzuki. Uh, looking forward to this week uh, as 2019 already starts to get underway uh, in Valencia. But we'll have all of that as well as the final three races of the season to review next week uh, on Bike Live. But this week we reviewed another memorable World Superbike season for Jonathan Ray. Our huge thanks once again to Greg Haynes for joining us. Uh, my thanks to you, Andrew Harrison, as well for joining me. And my thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, as we bring the curtain down on the 2018 World Superbike Championship. Jonathan Bray bringing up four of a kind. We will see you next week.